Anything further, Father? Anything further, Father? That can't be right. Isn't it anything farther further? The idea. I married your mother because I wanted children. Imagine my disappointment when you arrived. It's the Marx Brothers Council Podcast, Episode 41, Waxing Roth. Now then, baboons, this is Noah Diamond, and as always, I'm cooling a couple of heels in here. First, his books include The Annotated Marx Brothers and That's Me, Groucho, as well as the recently published Mr. Crippen, Cora, and the Body in the Basement, and the soon-to-be-published Annotated Abbott and Costello, co-authored with friend of the show Nick Santamaria. Please welcome our man in Bath, Matthew Conian. Never mind that, hold this coat. (laughs) <laughs> and he is the masterful media manipulator responsible for making thousands of hours of television watchable, and even more impressively, making the Marx Brothers Council podcast listenable. Burning a candle at both ends, as always, here is Connecticut's greatest Chicagoan, Bob Gasell. Thank you, Noah. But to be honest, I'm not really sure my heart's in this one. I, I, without something to criticize, maybe I shouldn't even be here. And a hot dog stand would clean up here because we are also joined by a very special guest. He is one of my and the world's favorite writers, a contributor to The New Yorker since 1986, the author of 10 books, including the recent and recommended A Thousand Small Sanities, The Moral Adventure of Liberalism. He has also participated in the noblest aspiration of humankind, writing musicals. And he has written about the Marx Brothers, including lots of references throughout his work, and prominently in the New Yorker essays Talking Man from 2000, and How a Lost Marx Brothers Musical Found Its Way Back on Stage from 2016. Ha! Huh, sounds interesting. Yeah. He is the editor and introductory essayist of the magnificent, just-published Library of America anthology of S.J. Perelman, which if you're listening to our podcast, you're probably going to want to get your hands on. Here he is, the one, the only, Adam Gopnik. Wonderful to be with you, Noah. No place I would sooner be than with three other Marxists. Well, this episode, as you may have reckoned, is our long-awaited horse feathers deep dive, and we will soon cut the watermelon open. Yeah. We've been talking about the uh, later era of Marxism and Groucho for like a year here. It's good to get back to Paramount. It's nice to be talking about one of the good ones. Mm -hmm. And we will do that in short order. But first, Adam, uh, we want to ask you, as we ask all our guests, what is your Marx Brothers origin story? Uh, How and when did you first encounter their work? And what does it mean to you? Well, I've been thinking about that because like most origin stories, I think the origin story I was inclined to tell you is false, as as they usually are. Uh, <laughs> and the story, but the story that as I have reconstructed it uh, is that when I was in high school in Canada, uh, uh, Horse Feathers, it was actually Horse Feathers, not Monkey Business, was on a border station, Channel 5 in Plattsburgh, New York, on a Saturday night at 1130. And um, I caught it. Now, I, I the reason this origin story is actually a bit dubious is that my father, who was an English professor, taught a course on comedy and worshipped the Marx Brothers. So I strongly suspect that my memory of coming upon them ab ovo, right from the egg and discovering them for myself, is probably not entirely true. And I'd probably been tempered and trained by my father to appreciate them. But I remember seeing Horse Feathers at 1130 on a Saturday night in Montreal when I was 12 or 13. 
And I thought it was the single greatest thing I'd ever seen. And at, in those days, as you all remember all too well, the only way to see Marx Brothers movies, the only way to see old movies at all, really, was to wait for them to come on television. This is a concept we can't possibly transmit to our children. You waited for someone else to decide once every mm -hmm. 12 weeks to put on, to broadcast a movie you wanted to see, which would then be interrupted by commercials and so on. If you were growing up in New York, you had better odds, right, of seeing uh, of seeing the classic films you wanted to see. If you were growing up in Montreal, you basically depended on the kindness of strangers, in this case, the near-the-border American television stations. Um, I saw uh, Horse Feathers, was enraptured by it, and then uh, waited desperately for more Marx Brothers to come up on those stations, saw Monkey Business and Duck Soup, and then um, Animal Crackers was re-released commercially sometime in the early in the early 1970s. And I remember seeing that on a big screen. And then this was the, still the era of repertory cinemas. So the MGM films were um, still fairly widely distributed in repertory houses. So I saw all that lesser marks go west in the big store and Day at the Races and, of course, A Night at the Opera um, in theaters, which oddly I had not been able to see the this far superior Paramount films in. Uh, and as I say, yeah, I'm sure there are, there are, as with most things that seem to be accidental patterns in our youth turn out to be the result of somebody's shrewd financial calculation or copyright disputes or whatever. Anyway, I fell in love with the Marx Brothers, as I, everyone on this podcast uh, did. And um, it was a love that was allied to a general um, discovery and love of uh, American classic comedy. It came about around the same time that all of the great Chaplin features were re-released for uh, for in the theaters around 73, 74. Keaton was there in the Cinémathèque uh, Québécois. Uh, but I shared Woody Allen's sense that Groucho was the greatest comedian, American comedian, who'd ever lived. And pressed to say why, um, I think, and having just watched Horse Feathers again in the last few days repeatedly, um, a couple of things come to mind. One is the familiar one, the, the sheer anarchism of the Marxist comedy, and it's reflected in everything from the Groucho's constant breaking of the fourth wall, the, you know, I, I have to stay here for this. There's no reason why you folks shouldn't go out into the lobby well, until this passes over when Chico's playing the piano. But Chico's playing the piano reminded me of another side of the Marxist that I deeply loved. I don't know if I would have articulated it this way at 12 or 13. And that is that along with the anarchy, there was an implicit order in every Marx Brothers film, which was deeply uh, seductive. Chico, Chico, I should say, I've learned from Noah how to pronounce that name correctly. Chico uh, had to have a piano solo, however arbitrary and unwanted it might be. Harpo had to have a harp solo, uh, however eccentric that might seem. There was always a song. There was a set piece. There's an order in a Marx Brothers comedy, which is in itself extremely seductive and in a sense is an alternative order to the fake or pious order of the pompous official world that they're constantly satirizing. Chaplin, I think, as you remember, famously said, oh, the Marx Brothers are nothing but anarchists. They're just anarchists. And they are. And that's part of the reason we love them. I have behind my head as I speak a, a photograph of uh, the Marxes as young men, in which they look exactly like Italian anarchists of the same period. They look like futurists. They don't look like vaudeville comedians. I do think that uh, the fraternal order, if you like, the sense that 
even though Groucho is constantly rolling in his eyes at Chico, which I gather from my subsequent Mark's reading was far from a, an assumed manner that Groucho, in fact, was exasperated with Chico every day of his life. That nonetheless, there is a kind of fraternal, a brotherly order within the film, so, so that the Marxists, including Zeppo, that the what, what's Woody Allen's line about that? He went out with a woman girl, and he knew they were mismatched because she thought Zeppo was the funny Marx brother. Um, that there is a kind of fraternal order, so they always end up together. They always end up on the same side, even when there's there's kind of no mucilage between them. So that was a kind of sub-theme, I think, that appealed to me, and that connected the Marxists in in complicated ways to the Beatles, who famously were also very much a, a necessary icon of that period, and who clearly, if they had not been directly influenced, certainly Richard Lester in making A Hard Day's Night had been influenced by the Paramount. Uh, Marx Brothers movies, uh, in the tone and the surrealism. And there again, the Beatles were a very powerful metaphor of uh, alternative community, if you like, in that period. It was uh, community and family without the necessary bonds of claustrophobic ethnicity, if you like. So the Marxists in that way were not just a model of anarchic uh, rebellion against order, as they are so beautifully in uh, in horse feathers, uh, where they find the perfect target in uh, in a university and in the pomposity of university life. I think the only other film that has an equivalently well chosen target is *Night at the Opera*, where they're juxtaposed against uh, against the opera. And I think we always feel this is a parenthetical digression. In fi- the, one of the reasons the day at the races is less much less satisfying is because there's nothing odd about having the Marx Brothers at a racetrack. Um, it, they, they seem to belong there. There's nothing strange about having the Marx Brothers in that matter on a, on a cruise ship oh, or an ocean liner, in fact. So Horse Feathers and Night at the Opera seem to me in some ways the greatest Marxist satires, along with Duck Soup, which is a more complicated case, exactly for that reason. They have a, uh, a perfect target. But to conclude this extremely labyrinthian, Proustian sentence, despite, <laughs> despite the joy we take in their anarchy, we also take a certain kind of uh, subsume joy in the in the metaphor of family that they offer. Does that answer your question, Noah? Yeah, that that all works for me. Um, and and all true. I, it's amazing how many people, whenever we ask the question, when you fell in love with the Marx Brothers, he won't be asking that one again. <laughs> What's it's always 10, 10, 12, 13. That's the age for this stuff to enter you, isn't it? Yes, and never and never leaves you. And in those days, as you'll recall, the only way you could sort of um, relive the movies was through books. There was a book called The Marx Brothers at the Movies, which I bought, and another one called The Marx Brothers, Their World of Comedy. I have them both still someplace yeah. here. So if you wanted to refresh your memory of Groucho's lines, yeah. you had to you had to go there. I also owned the um, the recording of Groucho at Carnegie Hall, where he's uh, old, sounds old and frail. Uh, but um, uh, is extremely effective. And that last recording of Show Me, uh, Show Me a Rose is one of the most beautiful and lyric- poetic things he ever did. Years later, I got to be um, very close to, sort of, um, as I've written in my book, At the Stranger's Gate, adopted by Richard Avedon, the great photographer. And he took the photograph, if you remember, for that record. But he took an even better portrait of Groucho for his, that's in his book, Portraits. And as he said to me once, 
and you can see it in that picture, Groucho had the perfect, the ideal face of the Jewish intellectual. You looked at that Avenon portrait of Groucho and you would be sure it was Walter Benjamin or um, uh, yes. Irving Howe. Uh, Irving Howe wasn't that good, as good looking, but that he had that kind of the, the, you know, the implicitly aristocratic features of a great Jewish intellectual. And it's one of the things that's fascinating, of course, in sort of tragic in some ways, if you read about Groucho's life, is that he was the perfect vehicle for minds like George Kaufman or S.J. Perlman, who weren't intellectuals in the Walter Benjamin sense, but were certainly intellectuals in the Algonquin Round Table sense. And he was the perfect transmitter of those, uh, of that language. And yet himself, I think, was not uh, entirely a possessor of it. And I think, you know, you feel his kind of, in a certain sense, the you know racing to keep up in his letters and in his life with those uh, with those men. And may I add here, and this is now we'll we'll walk off into transgressive material. It does seemed to have been a thing that was a virus that caught and remained constant in twelve and thirteen year old boys more often than in than in girls. I I know that's a, a it's like card magic, right? It. It tends to catch in that way. I hope that's no longer true, but it was true then. There are exceptions, but there's certainly truth to it. And for any listeners who want to take a look at the, the second Avedon portrait Adam is talking about, the, the less frequently seen one, um, you can find it on the internet. It's the photo of Groucho without glasses. Exactly. Um, and so you can really look right into his eyes in a way you normally can't, and it is quite something. Exactly. Well... Bob and Matthew, um, how about you guys, as far as Horse Feathers itself goes, did, did your first or early encounters with this particular film have any, any noteworthy qualities? Yes, it was, um, it was one that I watched, um, as I, I watched, you know, lots of them over the course of about a week was my introduction to them. This was one that I came to having, uh, already found and loved them. So this was one I was primed for really looking forward to. And I watched it with my father and he, he, he loves W.C. Fields, but he, he's not particularly, uh, a Marx Brothers fan. And I can't offhand think of any other time when we did watch one together but we watched that one together um and both uh just roared with laughter all the way through it in fact um at uh cut the cards yeah uh, my 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 father literally <laughs> literally uh left the sofa and uh and and went onto the floor so i've got i've got very warm memories of it indeed yeah, and I still think, looking at it again for this for this podcast, that it's probably you know it's not my my absolute favourite, but I think it is the one of which you can truly say there is not a dull second. You 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 will miss something if you if you turn away for for ten seconds at any point in this film. If I recall correctly, Horse Feathers was my first uh, favourite Marx Brothers film uh, way mm. back when I uh, started to get into them. Um, I think this was accentuated by the fact that I had the uh, Super 8 film uh, Pigskin Capers, which <laughs> highlighted the uh, football finale, and I love that as a Marx Brothers fan and as a football fan, and I think because of that, Horse Feathers was my favorite in the early days. And since then, it's not that I like it less, it's just that a couple of other films have jumped above it, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. 
for me, Horse Feathers was very elusive in the early years of being interested in the Marx Brothers, um, because as Adam says, I was at the mercy of other people, television programmers, and uh, a few years later, the um, people who stocked the shelves at video stores. So for reasons that are only random and coincidental, uh, Horse Feathers was hard to find when I was tracking all these movies down, and it was the last of the good ones I ever saw, and I, I think it was almost the last of all of them that I ever saw. I think A Night in Casablanca and Love Happy were both later, my first viewings of them. But by the time I saw Horse Feathers, I had already seen the other Paramounts dozens of times. And as a result of that, it has... Wait, wait, now, no, how does this happen? I, I don't get it. As far as I'm concerned, and I think for most Marx fans, Horse Feathers and Monkey Business are, are tied at the hip, and, you know, they're pretty much seen in tandem. Yeah, I don't know if it's that... You know, these are the years from about the age of 12 to, you know, 18, um, maybe even maybe 12 to 16. It's when I first started to urgently track down the movies, which at that time meant combing the television listings and looking for VHS tapes at video stores and libraries. And for some reason, I just couldn't find Horse Feathers. It, it wasn't on television that I was aware of um, during those years. And so... I I was like I could recite duck soup line by line before I ever saw horse feathers and as a result of that it has retained some of that freshness it's a little less familiar to me than the other great ones and um it's one of the reasons I enjoy it so much there's a kind of I don't know what to call it a kind of linguistic density about horse feathers it's in some ways it's groucho's greatest movie because he just dominates he has so I mean animal crackers um Equally, perhaps, but that's so clearly a stage show with all of the the clumbering and lumbering apparatus of a stage show that it slows down in lots of places. But Groucho is just a a whirlwind of wit in Horse Feathers. He just does not stop from his first appearance until the end, and it, it's wonderful. And I grew up learning the basic distinction of Paramount and MGM, Paramount good, MGM bad, in a kind of Orwellian way. Um, and that, but the Duck Soup was the culmination of the Paramount films. And having seen Duck Soup, you know, like all of you countless times, it, it, Duck Soup now seems to me less good than one quite wants it to be. The setting is amazing. The production values are astonishing. Groucho as the prime minister, for all of that stuff is fantastic. But I do feel that it, you slog through a lot of slapstick of kind of of lesser slapstick now in watching it courtesy of Noah who exposed me to the uh to the original script in which we I should I should know that these other guys are nodding their heads while I'm disagreeing. Oh okay. yeah, okay. uh, <laughs> uh I would you know I would I would not trade duck soup for 40 you know for gone with the wind they could cut gone with the wind up into mandolin picks if it me- meant keeping uh duck soup that's you know let's put it in the right in the right context but I do think and here we come to to one of the the fascinating questions that Horse Feathers presents for us Marxists is that S.J. Perlman's role in it, I I do suspect, gave it a kind of uh, uh, I know what to call it called referential elusive density that's um, with, that's almost without equal in in all the Marx Brothers work. The script of Duck Soup, by comparison, seems to me wonderful though it is, uh, seems more conventionally wisecracked. Whereas in uh, in in horse feathers, you're taking these amazing, you know, trips out to you know be a lamp in the window for my wandering boy, right? Uh, 
that are unlike anything else in in American comedy. Yes, it seems too that horse feathers um, it benefits from being in so many ways a return to animal crackers. Uh, I'm sure we'll get into this more deeply as we discuss the film um, and its its various beats, but it's it's the return of Kalmar and Ruby, I think that that makes horse feathers after the experimental nature of monkey business, um, which is really a, a whole different formula. Uh, horse feathers takes kind of the best of what was true in animal crackers and and you know makes it cinematic um i i don't think after monkey business there was any reason to expect an opening number for groucho uh fanciful character names all the things that were dispensed with in order to make the marx brothers kind of a single unit force in monkey business in some mm-hmm. ways it's a return to formula it's a return to the kaufman and riskin formula the broadway formula yeah yeah i think that's true I find the way this film was edited totally fascinating. Um, actually, this applies to Duck Soup, too. They shot these longer scenes, but took the best moments of them and put them together, and that was the film. If plot points mm. and characters were lost along the way, they didn't, really didn't care. The comedic moments were the priority, which was totally yeah. the opposite as MGM, where the plot was the number one. And if there was a compromise or decision to be made, it was the comedy which usually lost out. Yeah. But don't right, you think, though, right. Bob, that is, as Noah was saying a second ago, it's very much the the formula of a successful Broadway musical of the period, so that the the kidnapping of the football players in Horse Feathers is very much like the, the stolen painting in Animal Crackers, yes, right? It's right, just, absolutely. It's yes. the... It's the device that that keeps the story moving that you're not supposed to invest in at all. And, you know, God help us all, the Thalberg formula, mm-hmm. right? You're actually supposed to care. And we should also say that the film does have one less happy distinction, which is that it is the surviving uh, film in the Marx canon that has has the most bits missing from it. And uh, some of them, some of the most uh, dramatic um, print damage. And uh, I'm going to be even more discombobulated than usual this time because I'm I'm juggling two sets of notes and the reason I'm juggling two sets of notes is because I watched it juggling two scripts. Uh, one is the uh, shooting script dated March the 7th, 1932. The other is the cutting continuity script dated July the 26th. And I've made my most concerted effort yet to work out exactly what has been taken out because wow. of censorship, what is missing because of print damage, and what has been cut just for for timing and pace. So I'll be I'll be sprinkling those uh, as we go along. That's fascinating. I, I was fascinated watching it this time, and the, to a degree that I wasn't fully aware of in my 12 or 13-year-old state when I first saw it, by how intense the double entendre is on it. All the stuff with um, Thelma Todd. And by the way, isn't that a basic uh, discrimination one meant to make in life? It's like yin and yang or positive and negative. Thelma Todd or Margaret Dumont, right? You're either, <laughs> you're wooing one or the other in in this life. But I was astonished by it. And it was, it was right, sitting right on the seam of the code, Matthew? Well, no, it was 1934 was when, when it kicked in. But so the, the possibility is that some, some cuts were done for, for a code era reissue. Adam, if you look at the uh, contemporary reviews of Horse Feathers from 1932, you'll be surprised to see that as positive as they were, the film got a tremendous amount of criticism for blue and crass and off-color humor. Huh. 
And actually, I was thinking if Nell Minow, the movie mom, had been around in 1932, <laughs> she would have been not pleased with this one. That's very that's very cool. It's very striking when you watch it now uh, that it is that it that it's it clearly has those qualities. It's wonderful, you know. Groucho gets to express his lechery more more openly than in any other movie because he's with Thelma Todd, the tragically doomed Thelma Todd. Well, before we dig into the details of this filthy movie, let's um, <laughs> go back in time a little bit and just look at the circumstances that willed it into existence. It's easily forgotten, I think, that the Marx Brothers initially, after making Coconuts and Animal Crackers in New York, they got a two-picture deal with Paramount. Uh, that Those were the original terms. And they went out to Hollywood sort of thinking that this might be a lark or even a failure. They were going to make those two films, but they were still essentially a stage act that was going to be making its living on the stage. So as soon as they finished making Monkey Business, they went right back out on the road. They did this vaudeville tour. Um, playing big cities in Ohio and New York and also um, Chicago and St. Louis. Um, and they did a tabloid that was derived from all three of their Broadway shows and was known as Napoleon's Return because they were doing the Napoleon scene from I'll Say She Is. The tour landed in New York in January of 1932. And during those weeks in New York, they started to meet with Herman Mankiewicz and Kalmar and Ruby and S.K. Perlman to start hammering out the next movie. Um, Arthur Sheikman and Will B. Johnstone joined them in California later, and Perlman did not. Uh, so interestingly, all of Perlman's work on the film was done during those first weeks in New York while they were you know, finishing up their vaudeville tour. You know, they were great Broadway stars at that point, and great Broadway stars in the kind of the Alexander Woolcott George Kaufman circle, and very few of those folks went on to become movie stars. You know, Ethel Merman and uh, Jimmy Durante. W.C. Fields eventually in the 40s would have a, a remarkable career, but um, that was a very separate world at that time. I think you're right, Noah. And it was a world in which you could absolutely plan to make your entire life uh, successfully without the support of Hollywood. Getting back to the uh, genesis of this film for a moment, I recall reading some uh, news clippings from the late 20s that refers to a project called the Marx Brothers at Yale. Is that mm. some sort of early version of the same concept? My guess is it was just uh, it was just a, t a title that, that they pulled out of thin air and had as a kind of a, a standby whenever they were asked, what are you going to be doing next? And they didn't have a, an answer. That was kind of what they went for. And I think, um, or, or I, I like to think that on this occasion, uh, that's what they went for when they were seriously asked by the studio, you know, what, what's, what are you going to do next when, when they were conferring with the writers? So we've had this, this, this Yale thing that we've been talking about. Why, why don't we actually see if there is some, some juice in that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that could have been scored by Cole Porter if they had made the Marx Brothers at Yale. It would yeah. have been nice. <laughs> exactly. No, it's funny, actually, because the um, the college football theme of the movie, obviously, is, um, uh, you, you know, it's hard for us to recall that those, those were um, Ivy League teams, the Darwins and Huxleys, liberal arts colleges, right, that were... Uh, that had uh, uh, football corruption in that time. I have a daughter who's at an Ivy League school right now, and she actually went off to the big game yesterday, just as though it were 1926 all over again. I still can't get over it because my generation never would have done that, never taken it that, <laughs> that seriously. But just to come back to the point I was making quickly, um, 
it it's hard for us, to, I think, to rejig our minds to understand that being big on Broadway was just as big, and if not, cla- and much classier than being big in Hollywood. There's a kind of selection effect at work. We only know the things that were big in Hollywood because they're all that survives of the uh, of the popular entertainment of that time. But just to second Noah's point, it makes perfect sense that the Marxists would have thought, well, we'll go out and we'll do a couple movies, and then we'll come back. Then we'll come back home to New York. By the uh, early spring of 32, they're in Hollywood making the movie. It's all swimming along. Um, and then on April 9th, 1932, uh, Chico is in an automobile accident. He fractures his knee, which is his kneecap is broken in six places and mended with silver wire, according to the United Press, on June 22nd. Um, he was apparently his vehicle struck another vehicle. He was thrown into the steering wheel. And in addition to the damage to his kneecap, he bruised his chest and broke several ribs. Um, in fact, the Associated Press specifies that his car struck another machine driven by Max Holcomb, real estate man. So a bad day for both of them. Um, and as a result of that, they still had about 10 days of shooting left at that time. And uh, that included the football finale. Yeah. Um, and as a result of that, Chico is visibly seated or in some cases replaced by a not very convincing double, huh. um, especially in the football scene. Yeah. It really couldn't have happened at a more unfortunate time as they were about to shoot the most physically demanding finale they ever did. Uh, there are interesting press items about the hospital experience when Chico was recovering. United Press on April 23rd, 1932. Hospital, cheerful place as Marx Brothers gamble. <laughs> this is Cedars of Lebanon. The institution became known as the most cheerful and enjoyable in the city. The corridors ring with laughter and nurses go about their work with big, wide smiles. Because Chico Marx is nursing a broken kneecap. <laughs> Every day, Zeppo, Groucho, and Harpo, his brothers, visit the hospital, whiling away the time playing pranks on each other. Uh, so maybe a day at the races was also born during this. So Gummo didn't go to the hospital? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Gummo was completely indifferent. Uh uh, less than two months later, they are at the Southern Pacific Amateur Athletic Union track meet, filming a little bit of the football finale during an actual Olympic qualifying race. And the United Press noted, of course, they had little hope of qualifying for the Olympic Games, but a camera recorded their efforts for a picture they are making. Right. I think there's only one shot from this particular day that made it into the film, and I'll point it out when we get there. All right. The film begins, I've been criticized on some previous episodes of this show for uh, neglecting the credits, so I yeah. don't want to make the mistake. Any thoughts on the credits? Well, actually, it's Paramount who neglected these credits. I mean, it's a nice <laughs> animated piece, I'll give it that, but it's pretty skimpy. We got the Marxes, we got Thelma Todd, we got David Landau, we got the director, Norman McLeod, who does a wonderful job. We have the writers, we have the cameramen. And that's it. Yeah. Apparently only 10 people were involved in the making of this film. <laughs> and one animated horse. Yeah, but I will add that those an, those early animated credits give a, give a great, lovely kick of kind of uh, primitive energy to the to the movies. They're, they, you know, they're, they're perfectly suited to the, uh, the spirit of, of what comes after. That's true. And I love the painted caricatures. Of them yes, they're really, shown. they're very modern. And is there any way we could 
somehow tie the the term horse feathers to anything that's in the film, even remotely? No. <laughs> I guess it, it means nonsense, right? Or, you know, balderdash. Right. But that's as far as I can go toward making it relevant to the <laughs> to the picture that ensues. Um, and then in an establishing shot, we are told instantly that uh, this is going to take place on a college campus. Um, and not for the first time in American popular culture. Um, Matthew, in the annotated Marx Brothers, you do a lot of great work in establishing that all of the Marx Brothers Paramount films, the, the three originals, are parodies in a way that has been lost over the years. Yes, because the the things that, they, that they're referring to are, are no longer current. And I think I say in the book, um, if you imagine that uh, Western movies were just a very, very brief fad around the end of the 1930s that, that, that then went completely into oblivion. We would now be looking at Go West and saying, oh, this is a satire on pioneer days. Um, but of course it isn't. It's a comedy Western. Uh, similarly, um, around the time this film was made, um, they were just endlessly churning out college movies um, more or less on, on a perpetual loop and, and all of the uh, stock elements of this film um, are just uh, are tropes taken from from the the popular college movies of the day so anybody in 1932 who went to see this film would think ah right they're they're, they're doing a college movie whereas now we look at it and think mm-hmm. they're doing a college movie Yes, and you know, this point is uh, very similar to a point that you make, Adam, in the introduction to the new Library of America Perelman anthology. The nature of work that is a parody of something which has itself been forgotten. Um, And in this introduction, I'm going to read a little bit of Adam's intro here. Uh, Great satire, great poetic satire, brings its field of mockery with it. The objects of satire are more evident in the satire than the mockery is, more evident than they were to the time supposedly satirized. Isn't that interesting? I've never seen any of the college pictures that you're talking about, Matthew, but I could tell you lots of their familiar tropes because I've seen horse feathers. Yeah, exactly, Noah. And I think, you know, it comes to the very simple thing. I was thinking about this watching it. When I was 12 or 13, I had no idea what a college widow was. And I don't think anybody of our generation had ever heard the phrase a college college widow. It by doing due diligence, I now understand that it was a it was a well established what we would now call a trope. It it was actually the title of a play by a once very famous American humorist, George Ade, and so on. But I you're never troubled for a moment thinking, hmm, what's a college widow? What are they making fun of here? Because of course it all comes together instantaneously that it's a uh, uh, a vamp, uh, you know, a woman who who flirts with um, uh, college boys on the periphery of things. So I think that that's a that's a powerful truth. It's true about the Marxists, obviously, but it's even more true about S.J. Perlman because Perlman's subjects tend to be highly specific uh, mockery of American advertising and American vulgarity of all kinds, and yet we never we never scratch our heads and say, what's he making fun of here? What he's making fun of is the fun. And the idea of uh, satirizing um, education or uh, works of art about education or just the the great fertility of the classroom dynamic as a vehicle for comedy, of course, goes back not only a long time before Horse Feathers, but is in the earlier career of the Marx Brothers. I always feel it's a little overstated, the connection between 
the classroom stuff in Horse Feathers and the early school act that the Marx Brothers did, which was itself an imitation of other school acts that were popular in vaudeville at the time. Um, people are always very quick to say in Horse Feathers, oh, well, you can see what their school act was like in vaudeville. Yeah, okay, because Groucho's playing the teacher and the other brothers are the unruly students. Um, but as far as we know, there's no actual material being reprised here from, from fun in high school. Uh, nevertheless, the, the idea, the question and answer format of education lends itself very well to this kind of thing. Yeah. Adam, uh, you, you read George Aid's play recently. Yes. Uh, how is it? Not very good. I, I, I did a deep dive, to use the expression of the George Aid a couple of years ago, because he was a hugely influential and important writer, Indiana-bound, at a time when Indiana was sort of the Williamsburg of American literature. Everything was coming out of Indiana, Tarkington and so on. And it's not very good. You know, it's very, you know, formula uh, uh, comedy, but it sets up all the things that they are then mocking. I mean, that's, you know, obviously everybody had seen it. And everybody was, and and so the whole idea of the the college widow who's uh, uh, who's preying, so to speak, on the on the on the college boys is a uh, is a is a powerful one there. Uh, I, just to add, you know, I think that the the whole thing about uh, the college mockery at the risk of um, an inevitably pompous interpolation. I just will point out that that is one of the great themes of comedy is the mockery of the pomposity of education going right back to Aristophanes' The Clouds, right, which is the great uh, satire of Socrates, who's teaching kids the, all of these crazy abstract things. And a father comes to extract his son from Socrates' academy. And that's, you know, so that I think is much more the underlying, what to call it, template of horse feathers than the specifics of uh, of the of the George Eight period. Is there something uh, Socratic about the Marx Brothers too? Something about the Socratic method of sometimes pursuing logic to its ridiculous extremes that pops up in the Marx Brothers too? I always thought it would be fun to do uh, Barefoot in Athens as Groucho. He would have been great. He would have been great as. Uh, as can, just thinking of the first scene, though, can I add something else that occurred to me watching it this time? No, no, by all means. And that is the importance of the influence of Gilbert and Sullivan on the on the early Marxists. The whole um, "I'm against it" number, with the way the um, the student audience chimes in and and sings along, is very much a kind of it's a Gilbert and Sullivan pastiche slash parody, uh, which is fueling it. And as you all remember, Groucho eventually did uh, the Mikado. Uh, and I, I was just struck by that, how much Gilbert and Sullivan there is in the Marx Brothers in that um, a, that style of mock musical comedy that they were doing. And I, I, I suspect that, you know, Gilbert and Sullivan have faded a little bit for us generationally. We don't go as often as our grandfathers did and grandmothers to see Gilbert and Sullivan. But I do know that when Rogers and Hart, for instance, were in Hollywood at Paramount in exactly the same period, when people were putting them down, they called them Gilbert and Sullivan. George M. Cohen, uh, for whom they were writing a movie, <laughs> said, oh, that goddamn Gilbert and Sullivan. So Gilbert and Sullivan was a way of saying uh, highbrow, uh, hopelessly highbrow uh, satire that we don't need here in Hollywood. And I was struck by how much Gilbert and Sullivan there is residual in that scene, as indeed there is in the opening of uh, Duck Soup. 
Yeah, and uh, which again goes back to Animal Crackers, the the introductory yeah. song that brings in Groucho as the inexplicably celebrated hero. <laughs> uh, but in in all of these cases, in in none of these cases, do we jump in as quickly as we do with horse mm-hmm. feathers. Yeah, right into the deep end. Um, there's a difference, I think. Um, there's a very subtle difference, though, between uh, the Groucho of uh, this film and the next one, and the one from Animal Crackers, who is the one who reappears in Opera and Races, which is that although he's celebrated in, in all of them, it's it's pretty obvious in uh, Animal Crackers and then again in uh, the MGMs that he is a fraud, that he is an interloper. Whereas in Duck Soup and Horse Feathers, um, clearly he is a fraud, but inexplicably, uh, he is genuinely celebrated for reasons that we are not made privy to because it doesn't matter. It's a, it's a, it's a, on a slightly different layer of, of, of reality. Yeah. That's a beautifully subtle and accurate point, right? That we know that he, Captain Spaulding has never been to Africa, right? And is, is, bullshitting through it and how professor wagstaff has ended up as the president of huxley mm. is, is inexplicable but clearly perfectly logical to everybody mm. everybody else in the world can we talk about the very first the very opening when uh he's been introduced and they have him over there in the, in the corner shaving i mean we're to assume that he had a beard you know he was like one of the other guys with a beard was it a grease paint beard that he is shaving on? <laughs> well it's funny because he says i thought my razor, my razor was done i heard right. his speech it's the only that's the most logical thing in this film he's shaving and then he talks about his razor that's the that's as far as we're going to go toward uh, coherence from one event to the next uh, there are great things in his opening monologue, certainly. It's pretty much all yep. gold. There is a line missing from that bit. Uh, when Zeppo says, hello, old timer, in the shooting script, Groucho says, uh, old timer, eh? I'll make you eat those words, you upstart, you parvenu. I'll parvenu this time, but don't let it happen again. So that's been uh, been cut. You know, a question that fascinates me, obviously, and it may be both um, unanswerable and hardly worth answering, but is you know exactly what Perlman's contribution to the to the movie is because he's he's a writer of such extraordinary gifts you know and to my mind the greatest of all American humorists and you feel at least I feel as a, somebody who's just come off reading truly every line he ever published in the last couple of years that you can feel his fingerprint that's a bad metaphor um, but you can you can spot his fingerprint on certain sections of it and then. Uh, uh, less surely so elsewhere. And I'm wondering, Matthew, is there any way within the 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 genealogy of the script to see what he wrote and what he did? Uh, sadly, not in the ones I've seen. No. Um, I mean, I've I've only I've only looked at a you know a final shooting script, so it would be um, you know scripts along the way to that final one that would have the interesting changes in them, where you might be able to detect certain certain voices you know, going up and going down in... in uh... Yeah, throughout the film, there. Do, I mean, to take the, you know, the classic exchange, you know, tell Roth to wax the Dean, it, you can't imagine that anybody except Perlman was, had that kind of audacity and also was that literary in a way, you know, a, an expression like um, the Dean is waxing Roth is not, it's not commonplace. It's not, you know, you have to actually be uh, an addicted reader even to know that, 
how that expression works, much less to turn it around and make it tell Roth to the dean. A, a phrase that in itself, as you'll recall, became the title of a satiric academic novel in the 1970s. Um, so I, I feel that you can, f- you can hear, uh, Perlman's voice at, in specific moments for Groucho, but it would be fascinating to know to what degree that is and is not so, because, you know, one of the things you discover when you actually get to know the genealogy of something is things that you're absolutely persuaded were drawn by the hand of the master. In fact, were drawn by an apprentice who wandered into the studio. Uh, and things that seem to be works of pure genius were done by some anonymous gag man who, who's, whose name we don't know now. It does seem that a, a line like Waxing Roth is, seems like it can be safely attributed to Perlman, or even the line that you just quoted, Matthew, the cut line, parvenu. I mean, yeah. you know, it, it's not only an uncommon word, it seems it's unusual even compared to the usual linguistic flights of fancy taken by Kelmar and Ruby, yeah. uh, who were very capable of their own wordplay, but it has a, a distinct uh, a distinct and different flavor to it than, than Perlman's. I, I thought it was interesting to learn that Perlman was not actually on this film for very long. It doesn't mean he didn't make, you know, a robust contribution during those weeks in New York. And uh, having read the essay he wrote about his experiences on monkey business, which appears in the new Library of America anthology, it's also not surprising that Perlman didn't want to go back to Hollywood when the rest of them were were on their way west. Uh, but uh, Parvenu, I'd put my money on that, too. <laughs> that, too. Although, you know, it, it's it's of the same uh, genre as, of course, in Alabama, the Tuscaloosa. And that's, um, and which is a, Cal- presumably is a George Kaufman uh, uh, line, though he's not, he's not here. Although, that's a good example, though. Maury Riskin has taken specific. It's claimed for, claim for that. Well, Riskin was a was a was a writer of 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 consequence. You know, really interesting, and actually wrote wrote for the New Yorker too. I just wanted to to ask a question because it's something that's always fascinated me. Everybody always talks about Herman Mankiewicz's contributions. Can we define what they were, other than sort of hurting hurting Marxian cats? It's silence. Difficult. Yeah, I was going to let Matthew take that. I, I, yeah, I was directing I saw, it more or less at Matthew. I, I saw you rubbing your hands together figuratively. I speaking. think yes. I mean that that is that is basically what it was, isn't it? It was just getting getting the right people, getting them in a room and locking the door, basically. And he, and he famously said, you know, he had no no interest in in any of the. Uh, finer points of structure or anything like that he just wanted wall-to-wall great jokes and he was apparently quite quite ruthless with um discarding jokes that he he felt weren't uh of the highest standard and, and they were told to go away and write some new ones but but that was basically i mean he, he says doesn't he uh, uh if it's just uh Chico and groucho leaning against the wall cracking jokes for an hour and 20 minutes that's good enough for me so yeah uh, perlman in his essay about monkey business has mankowitz visiting uh, him and John Stone while they were hammering out the screenplay and, and, you know, being quite characteristically brusque with them saying, I'll, I'll send, uh, at tea time, I'll send over a lettuce leaf for you to chew on. <laughs> um, as the, uh, as this opening scene continues, Groucho has a little bit of banter with Zeppo and then right away, uh, we get a song. We get one of the great Groucho musical performances. Somewhat unusual for never having been repeated elsewhere. I don't know what they have to say. It makes no difference anyway. Whatever it is, I'm against it. 
No matter what it is or who commenced it, I'm against it. Your proposition may be good, but let's have one thing understood. Whatever it is, I'm against it. And even when you've changed it or condensed it, I'm against it. This is the only performance on record I'm aware of, of this song, by Groucho or by anyone. It's also characteristic of these Kalmar and Ruby compositions. I think this is partly the Gilbert and Sullivan influence. It's a song that becomes another song. Mm. Um, and these are often two songs in one, you know. Uh, Hooray for Captain Spaulding is also Hello, I Must Be Going. Um, and in this case, I'm Against It, maybe the ultimate sort of, you know, mission statement for the entire Groucho enterprise becomes I always get my man. My son is right, I'm quick to fight, I'm from a fighting clan. When I'm abused or badly used, I always get my man. No matter if he's in Peru, Paducah, or Japan, I go ahead or live or dead, I always get my man. Which is an absurdity, right? In the in the in, the, in its evolution. Yeah, and there's something about the um um I always get my man. It's a colloquial sort of film noir. It's something you'd hear in a in a hard boiled film from this period, isn't it? Um, to to make this your uh, slogan, coming to assume the presidency of a college, <laughs> is uh, is itself a streak of Marxian humor. Also, Groucho's performance in this whole in that whole opening scene is a you know a high point of Grouchoism. It seems to me because he's got a, there's a kind of I don't know what to call it exactly, kind of cerebral coldness to Groucho's performance throughout Horse Feathers that's, that's at the top of his game. You know, there's, there's simply, it's, it's, it's straight, uncut, uh, Grouchoism. He seems, in, in, angry is the wrong word, but, um, He doesn't have many of those knowing grins like he had in, uh, Animal Crackers, which I love so much. He plays it very straight here. Yeah, he plays it very straight. There's also a lot of signifying, you know, during the dance portion, he he's tugging on the beards of the professors as he goes down the line. And the soundtrack has little fake sound effects on it that sound like people squealing in discomfort. But of course, he's also very clearly not even touching them. He's enacting the disrespectful gesture, right. but, but not actually committing it. Right. Somehow by the end of these songs, he has won the... Uh faculty over who were very skeptical oh, when it started. Wonderful professor. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and, oh, it's nothing at all. It's nothing at all. <laughs> there is one um very neat little cut in the song, um, which if you if you look at look for it, you can see it, but it's very smoothly done. When he's uh gets to the point of uh, I always get, I always get, I always get, I always get, I always get he stops there uh, originally and says uh, let's see, what was I supposed to get? Half a dozen eggs, two pounds of butter, and a can of smoked salmon. I always... Um, and you can you can Aww. see it. Yeah. Hmm. Oh, I wish they'd kept that. Hmm. Yeah. That sounds like a good gag. We should also mention Zeppo here, shouldn't we? Who has gone from, uh, I represent the Captain Who, to, to a full-on, knowing that as I do. Yes. Where does that come from? Yeah. Uh, Zeppo gets an aria in this song. Hmm. I, I don't want to get into a big thing here, but of course there's a debate about whether this is actually Zeppo's voice. Um, he's obviously dubbed here. He's not singing live. The voice is dubbed in. Whether it's his or somebody else's, we don't know. But I guess what makes it a little more suspicious is that Groucho does sing live when he's singing his songs. Yeah. Mm. Uh, a word about the dancing here, too. You know, we, we 
remember Groucho's corkscrew kicks so vividly from Animal Crackers. Uh, he performs them here too. And, um, in a way it's, it looks even more fluid, uh, than it does in Animal Crackers. Uh, I think maybe that's why we don't notice them. They're, they're not mm-hmm. as uh, prominent because they are woven into the fabric of the physicality here so much more smoothly. And let's note here that the uh, the combined age of the 20 actors playing the professors was 1,257 <laughs> years. This, this averages approximately 63 years to the actor, and the oldest one was 77. There were some press items, weren't there, about the choreographer? Yes, uh, Har- Harold Hecht, who, uh, who was a young Broadway ballet master at the time, uh, but ended up being um, quite a noted uh, film producer. Yeah, and it was it, the the uh, press items talk about it as being an unusual assignment for him. I guess he was used mm. to choreographing, you know, statues coming to life and young lovers. And right. here's a room full of grizzled professors with <laughs> mutton chops. Well, we go pretty quickly from this uh, triumphant musical opening to a scene between Groucho and Zeppo, which includes the first time the phrase college widow is invoked in the film. And obviously, Groucho is does not seem to be with Zeppo's mom any longer. Do we have any <laughs> theories on that? Yeah, maybe that's the role Margaret Dumont never got here. Yeah. The, the one other place I thought you could have gotten Margaret Dumont into this movie, although it would have been such a brief cameo, it wouldn't have been worth it. But later, when they're sawing themselves through the floor, Harpo and Chico land in the middle of a bridge game. Right? <laughs> yeah. Four ladies. You could, you could have put her there. Um, well, there's lots of good stuff in the Groucho Zeppo exchange, including the horsewhip line, um, which is also often attributed to Perelman, but apparently um, someone else has claimed it. Is that right? It seems to me I where you hear Perelman to my tuning fork unmistakably in the movie is in the kind of, as I said before, in the kind of weird literary cliches that creep into Groucho's uh talk as with the uh, I remember the day he left to come here a mere boy and a beardless youth I kissed them both goodbye that's that's a yeah. a, a reader's joke that's a reader's joke <laughs> whereas I'd horse with you if I had a horse is a vaudeville joke it's a very good vaudeville joke but it's a it's a vaudeville joke and I think that that's sort of the the where you sense Perlman's presence is in the cliche mongering of the of the script you know when the cliches are picked up and and delictated in the in the fabric of the movie absolutely there's a line um missing which i think i've mentioned before because it's such a strange one and on the whole i think uh it was it was wise to to not go with it but it's in the shooting script uh zeppo uh comes up to groucho at the end of the song and says dad let me congratulate you you did that with gusto and groucho says gusto harpo chico that must be a fifth marks brother Huh. Oh, uh, huh. a meta joke. I'm glad they cut that. Yeah. Huh. I, I'm glad they cut that too, but how curious. It, it mm. reminds me of the line in the stage script of Coconuts. There's a, a joke like that. It's the Span Yids. Oh, Span Yids, yeah. yeah. Groucho mentions the Marx Brothers by name. Um, this little scene really shows how significant Zeppel was to the act. Now, I know he doesn't do much except look down and be insulted, but when you think about it, who else could Groucho talk to like this? He certainly wouldn't insult uh, Ellen Jones or any of those other guys, the way he goes after Zeppel here. Yeah, right, right. And that aspect of Groucho's character totally left once uh, Zeppel left the act. Absolutely. Mm. 
And there's something about his look in this opening scene, too, with the sweater, the H sweater, and the striped pants. I assume he would be recognizable to the contemporary audience as a star of a college picture. You know we are obsessives when we are debating whether this is Zeppo's greatest performance. In the, in, <laughs> in, in, in it may that, well be. I think it is. I think it is. I think we can safely say Zeppo's finest performance in American <laughs> film occurred. But if I'm if I, at the risk of being boring on this, but I think that, that Bob has pointed, come back to the point I was trying to make before. We accept that Groucho can insult Zeppo freely because we have some under... Uh, underlying understanding that this is an act, that these are four brothers, right? It's why we also are delight in Groucho's insults of Chico, right? Because it's part of the 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 continuity. Our understanding is that it's spritzing within uh, a fraternal group. And even if that's never fully defined, I think it's part of the enormous radiance of good cheer that comes off of the movies, despite the 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 enormous aggression that they enact. Yes, uh, there's also the the breaking of the fourth wall starts mm-hmm. here. Groucho talks to the camera a lot in Horse Feathers, and the the first time is uh, the anything further father joke. Yeah. He he looks right at us to say that can't be right. Right. <laughs> well, Groucho tricks Zeppo into giving him the address of the speakeasy, more or less. And we then cut to a sign that says Elm Street, and a door that says Forty Two on it. You couldn't do that on stage. And uh, here we are. Now we meet the bad guys. The bad guys are uh, Mullen and McCarthy, as we will later know them. Um, and David Landau, who, besides the Marx Brothers and Thelma Todd, is the only credited actor in this film. Uh, what do we know about him? He's a crook. <laughs> I, I meant Landau himself. He. Um, he, he ha- <laughs> so did I. Oh, he's a crook. <laughs> Indeed. Um, well, he did appear in uh, a few dozen films um, from the silent era into the 30s, um, but died pretty young. He died three years after this film was made. Um, we also have Nat Pendleton um, in his first, but not in his last Marx Brothers role. Uh, he will return as the strong man and at the circus. Okay. Is he is he Mullen or McCar- McCarthy here? That, that's yes. a subject that many have debated, as you know, Noah. For, it, it, there's, a, there's a vast academic literature, Mullen or McCarthy. <laughs> uh, who are we to puncture the, the yes. mystery? Yes, exactly. <laughs> okay, now bear with me here. Mm-hmm. I'm going to show you why the entire premise of this film is flawed. Okay? Uh, <laughs> tell me exactly what's going on in this scene. Landau is planning to insert two ringers into the game on behalf of Darwin okay, College. Okay, now stop there. Right. Now, okay. what did we learn in the previous scene? That Huxley hasn't won a game in over 40 years. Now, why in the world does anybody need to hire ringers uh, or uh, steal signals in order to beat Huxley? The team hasn't won in 40 years. This is a great question. That I, you yeah. know, you've you've spotted the punctum, the whole of in consciousness in the in the storytelling. All I can say is is that I've never in fifty years I've never questioned that 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 plot device. Yeah, or, yeah, I've got nothing for that either, and 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 it never occurred to me. Uh, it's a good point. Shouldn't be too hard to beat uh, Huxley. Right. Yeah, may um, may I make a point. 
here and again, I, I forgive me because I, I I know I risk sounding pompous here about this stuff, but it's a fa- it is I think significant. You know, if you watch the um, uh, those fantastic Brownlow and Gill documentaries on Chaplin at right. work, right? The Unknown Chaplin. Chaplin is uh, uh, constantly worrying obsessively about the logic of the story that encircles the the comedy right? he just he's obsessive about it. takes you know shuts down the studio for months while he tries to figure out one six second sequence in city lights and so on and that is and here i defer to my father who, as i was saying taught the history of comedy for 40 years uh you know that's what very much you know what we call new comedy you know romantic comedy sentimental comedy where we want the story to make sense in order for the comedy to make sense but what the marx brothers is doing is exactly like what is sometimes called old comedy, the comedy that precedes as like Commedia dell'arte, right? You never ask what is is Columbine doing with Harlequin? How did they end up together? They they seem so ill suited for each other's presence. You never ask how did this servant come to be working with this master since the servant is so much smarter. You know, there's certain one of the things that makes that kind of comedy, which the Marx Brothers um, uh, express so permanently and fully, work is that. There are arbitrary um, uh, assumptions that you make as the comedy starts that you're never supposed to question, right? It's it's like it's like how did how did Professor Wagstaff become the president of a college? Right. It, that's you know that's 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 not a question, and it's um and so you that's part of the joy, that's part of the implicit arbitrariness of the universe that's being evoked <laughs> that we that we delight in. Yeah, you know, a, an ideologue um, who is um, in favor exclusively of human-motivated comedy, um, who, who thinks that the laughs are not going to be as effective without a story and pathos and, and sympathy, would, would probably say that it's easier this way, um, that Chaplin was doing the hard work of, of being a storyteller and being a creator on a, on a more advanced level, while the Marx Brothers, it's just gag, gag, gag. But in fact, what we learn from the Marx Brothers' work is that when that is your chosen course, everything has to top the thing that came before it. If you don't have narrative and pathos pulling the audience through the story, you have to keep topping yourself. It's why these films reach such dizzying heights. It's also why they tend to fall apart in the third act. That's beautifully observed, Noah. I think that's exactly right, that the the supposedly arbitrary structure of what scholars call old comedy, is actually in lots of ways more challenging than the, in no bad sense, sentimental structure of new comedy, that it 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 means exactly that the only way up is through an inflation of effects. And that's exactly right. Well, pretty soon after we meet the bad guys, we have the great pleasure of meeting Chico here playing Baravelli the Iceman and introduced um, with a musical theme, too. On the soundtrack here, we hear uh, Chico's composition, I'm Daffy Over You, which um, he played at the piano in Animal Crackers, and which is uh, heard in Monkey Business, too, and forever associated with him. Uh, it's nice that we get to hear Chico's theme music when we meet him. Yes, lady, this is Baravella the Iceman speaking. What do you want? What? One quarter scotch, one quarter rye. Wait a minute, hold on, I see if I got him. Now, uh, Prohibition Iceman would be a reference to a lot of viewers that would be just as obscure as a college widow. 
Yes, and I think there's been there's been some some deliberate cutting to to that end as well. I mean, obviously he's uh, as you I didn't realize you could you could see it, but you can when they deliver the ice to Groucho, you can you can see the bottles inside the ice. Um so that's what he's what he's doing when he's delivering ice. He's delivering bottles in a in a in a surreptitious way. Um but originally there was m- much more explicit uh, evidence of that. There were cakes of ice supposed to be on the table in front of him with holes bored in them. You were supposed to see him putting the bottles in the holes. And there's some dialogue cut from Groucho where he explains how much he charges for rye ice and how much he charges for scotch ice. Mm -hmm. It would have been very clarifying for me. I always assumed that the ice itself was frozen hooch. Ah, rather than a vessel right, for a yeah, bottle. yeah, and yeah, you can you can see the bottles in there in that in the scene when they deliver to Groucho. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I know that now, but uh, but it's it's an interesting thing too how um, how much fun we're having here with the idea of prohibition uh, during prohibition. Can, can I ask a question? Which again, you three would know obviously far better than I. And that is, who was the intended audience for the Paramount Marx Brothers movies? Uh, who were they sh- shooting them to? Because so much of it, I mean, little things like Darwin and Huxley being the names of the colleges, but also something like the like the Prohibition Ice, which couldn't have been something that Groucho's Barber and Peoria, you know, the famous thing, you know, we mm-hmm. said, how's this going to play for the Barber and Peoria? Presumably the Barber and Peoria would not have known anything about how um, uh, in New York City, or Chicago, you de- delivered um, delivered such things. Is there any remaining evidence about who Paramount intended these pictures to be seen by? Because they do seem to be designed for uh, a New York audience. Yeah, I mean, the question is who who's minding the store, isn't it? I mean, who who the people that Paramount had in mind for them is not necessarily the people who the people making it had in mind for them. And, and the question right. is how much, how much leeway and how much give and take was there on that? And I guess as long as they were making money, Paramount was, was, was happy. Yeah. Way back in the day, uh, some trade publications used to publish these exhibitor reviews talking about uh, the latest films and how their audiences, you know, responded mm-hmm. to them. And most of them were from small rural towns. And surprisingly, when it came to the Paramounts, the small town audiences really didn't get them. Uh, the exhibitors would say, my audience was confused and bewildered and it didn't really mean anything to them. But when you jump ahead to the MGM period, even the later ones, uh, you know, at the circus and go west in the big store, they would say their audience are thrilled and, you know, bring on more. The worse they, the worse they get, the better they do in that in that environment yeah there is there is a definite undercurrent that these are these are smart ass you know metropolitan comedians and and we don't like that kind of stuff here you know <laughs> that was the thalberg problem right that's what thalberg yeah. pretended to solve uh, which is why with- we're skeptical well at least matthew and i are about the uh, benefit of, of the road tours because mm. they usually went to these cities which were not major media hubs like salt lake city in portland and places like that and the audience was just glad to see the Marx Brothers. Uh, they weren't able to provide the critical feedback that perhaps a you know a Broadway audience would give them. It's another reminder, you know, that Thalberg wasn't crazy. I mean, when we look at his plan for the Marx Brothers and most of the films that resulted from his approach to them, we think, my God, how could anyone think this was better than what they were doing before? Uh, but certainly from a mass audience perspective, he was right at the time. It's often that way. I've written about this, you know, that you have uh, 
one of the things that happens that allows popular entertainment to become art, which the Marx Brothers, I think, surely are, is that nobody kind of knows exactly what's going to work. And so things go on in a kind of commercial haze that seems to be working. We're making some money off of it. Let's not look too closely at it until suddenly it doesn't. You know, it's sort of like rock music in the 1960s and the late 60s. The record executives had no idea what would what would work. They were totally out of their depth. And so you got these amazing, great, ambitious things like Tommy and Sgt. Pepper and so on. And then once they figured out what they what was going to work... It all, you know, you got Frampton Comes Alive and it all got, it all got shut down. Mm -hmm. I wanted to mention uh, regarding Darwin and Huxley and, and the joke there that, um, when I first encountered this movie as a teenager, my assumption is that we were talking about Aldous Huxley, uh, the only <laughs> Huxley I was familiar with at the mm -hmm. time. And uh, Brave New World, which I had read in high school around that time, uh, came out the same year as Horse Feathers, interestingly. Uh, but no, it's we're actually talking about the Right Honorable Thomas Henry Huxley, who was a um, an advocate of Darwin's, uh, one of the foremost exponents of Darwin's theories. He was known as Darwin's Bulldog, actually. And in fact, Darwin's Bulldog. That was his nickname. And he, in fact, wrote the first great review of, um, of On the Origin of Species in the London Times, the Christmas season that it came out, and did it anonymously, despite being an extremely close friend of, of Darwin's. So it's one of those, you know, showbiz, not quite showbiz anecdotes. That's, that's, <laughs> that's true. It was a put up job. It was a put up job. So does that mean that there is really no joke in the idea of two rival colleges being named for those two guys? No, uh, no. If you were an extremely sensitive, subtle <laughs> reader, you'd say, aha, we're being clued in that, in fact, what looks like a rivalry is, in fact, a complicity between Darwin and Huxley. <laughs> it never occurred, never occurred to me before. I just always assumed it was a joke that Perlman or Mankiewicz or somebody put in exactly to kind of uh, in plain English, to deride uh, a simpler audience who wouldn't get the joke. It was one of those kind of sorting jokes where you either it, <laughs> the fact that you get it means you're in a in a in a superior cast. Um, well, uh, the speakeasy scene continues, um, and we get uh, this guy who I guess is the either the proprietor or just the bouncer here, and he makes the fatal mistake of asking Chico to watch the door. And tells Chico that the password is swordfish. And we enter maybe the most famous thing in this movie, or at least the, the horse feathers reference that's most available to most audience members. Um, the notion of the password for anything being swordfish uh, continues to be perpetuated everywhere, um, including in the 2000 film Swordfish, which, according to film scholar Matthew Conium, is some sort of thriller or something. <laughs> I stand by that. <laughs> <laughs> it, apparently, the movie Swordfish is indeed some sort of thriller or something. I cribbed that from the annotated. Um, so, and then we find ourselves in this absolutely glorious password scene with Groucho and Chico. Uh, what do you think of this, guys? It's remarkable, and it's remarkably short for how memorable it is. It's true. There is some more that's 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 been cut when the. Um the, the following Harpo stuff that's missing um, it was bridged by some more of them guessing different types of fish outside the door. Um, but it doesn't add much to it. And I, and I think it was just cut for, for pace. 
as it is, there's almost no fat on the scene at all. It's it, and its briskness is one of the reasons it's so it's so dizzying, and the way they go so quickly from one of them knowing the password and locking the other out to neither of them knowing the password <laughs> and deciding on that basis that neither of them has a right to be inside. <laughs> That's a great moment, isn't it? I mean, that's like out of Lewis Carroll when Groucho says, I should be out there with you. <laughs> yes. that, you know, that's a sublime moment in Marx Brothers comedy. Uh, but as soon as they are locked out, and this moment will be repeated in Duck Soup when Harpo and Chico try to get into the Teasdale mansion, as soon as they find themselves on the wrong side of the door, they immediately start banging on it and trying right. to get back in. <laughs> And all of this um, frustration. Oh, actually, uh, before I move, before I talk about all of this frustration, <laughs> I just wanted to mention. I when I was looking into um, some of the press accounts from the time, I found there was this contest that ran in many newspapers to try to find the password. And so this swordfish thing was already moving into iconic huh. status yeah. on the movie's first release. Hmm. I'm, I'm reading here from a newspaper ad that ran on August 23rd, 1932. What is the missing password that magically opens all doors for the four Marx brothers in horse feathers? It's a nine letter word. The nine letters are scattered in parentheses in ads all over this page. Pin them down one by one, piece them together, and when you think you've got the right word, send it in immediately with your name and address and win two tickets to see horse feathers. Uh, so they knew they had something here that was going to capture people's imaginations. Yeah. Yeah. So they find themselves in there and having, having struggled so hard with this password phenomenon, uh, we then meet somebody who doesn't struggle with anything ever at any moment in the film. Uh, Harpo, um, out on the street in this celebrated cup of coffee gag, which is probably the second most famous thing in this movie. This is where we get the first uh, mysterious missing section, which I would ordinarily assume, um, you know, was, was, was just taken out at the time or, or maybe not even shot if it weren't for the fact that we have the famous testimony of, uh, of, uh, Alan Ailis that it was still present in a 1950s print that was doing the rounds in England. So for some reason, it, it's vanished somewhere along the way. Um, it's not particularly great stuff. It's, uh, Harpo, um, let's have a look. Um, he sees a dog, whistles for him. The dog pays no attention. He whistles again, but the dog will not come. So he reaches inside of the wagon, takes out a lamppost with street signs on it, 42nd Street and Broadway. He stands lamppost up alongside of curb. Dog approaches lamppost, sniffs. Harpo grabs him and puts him inside the wagon. Harpo repeats this gag with a very tiny chihuahua and a very small lamppost. So... It's vaguely possible that, uh, that uh, you know, the, the connotations of pissing against the lamppost did for that. But it's it's I would think it's more likely that it was just cut to speed things along. Except I disagree. I disagree. What you think the pissing against the lamppost thing? Oh, absolutely. I absolutely that would have been a haze code. Uh, but uh, then yeah. but then it's in Duck Soup, isn't it? The, the dog got to the pole first. Yeah, but that's a 1933 film. We're talking about a 1936 re-release of Horse Feathers. And you, oh, I see. You really think that pissing against the? I, I do. Okay, I do. Um, but then the very strange thing is in the in the shooting script, it then it then joins up with uh, the bit we know with the cup of coffee. What I cannot 
begin to make sense of is uh, in the cutting continuity, which should be exactly what what was um, you know what was finalised. Uh, the cup of coffee is missing, but the the lamppost stuff isn't. So I'll I'll leave that leave that for others to make sense of. And isn't this uh, set the street set familiar from a lot of other films? It's a gift, I think, and other yeah. Paramount. Yes, yeah. Mr. Muckle, look out! Um, and then uh, and then we go back into the speakeasy. Uh, Harpo's entrance when he's asked for the password. I think it's very significant that he pulls a fish and a sword out of his coat, s- impales the <laughs> the fish on the sword. And that's how he says the password. In other words, he doesn't pantomime it. Um, and I think this is one of the best illustrations of the point I'm always making, that he's not really a mime, and his best moments are almost never uh, times when he's practicing what we would recognize as pantomime. Mm-hmm. A, a, a mime would not have a fish and a sword concealed on his person. And, um, and then in this scene, we have uh, just one spectacular Harpo triumph after another. Uh, the way he orders a scotch. Doing the jig, yeah. The cut the cards gag, which is straight yeah. out of I'll say she right. is. Yeah, and the reaction by all these people to what he does is just perfect. Also a cut sequence where he's uh, he's using uh, bottles as um, uh, doing tempin bowling uh, with, um, with a, um, a grapefruit, I think, or some sort of fruit, and he rolls it down the bar and smashes all the bottles. Um, there's also a, an interesting cut Groucho line because we, we noted earlier the, uh, the anticipation of duck soup with him, with him calling Zeppo an upstart. There's a, another nice little anticipation of, of duck soup that, that's been uh, taken out when uh, Groucho goes to the bar. Uh, the barman says, "What's your pleasure? What's your pleasure, gents?" Some Groucho says, "My pleasure is eating crackers in bed, but right now I'll take a glass of beer." <laughs> <That's nice. laughs> but, but just if I may, underlining something I, that Noah said just now, which I think is terribly important in in understanding the Marx Brothers, is it's exactly right. Harpo is not nonverbal; he's preverbal. He's like a child, and if you ever have a uh, two-year-old child who's just struggling with language, they have some of that same resourcefulness in signing and indicating what it is that they want, or slightly younger, one and a half. And that's part of of Harpo's mythological presence. He's not a mime like Marcel Marceau doing something that's sort of arty and self-conscious. He's he's like a small child. He's he's the embodiment of uh, of a small child in a man's body with a crazy wig. And I think that gives him it's that kind of... Um, uh, you know, in the later movies, obviously, it becomes a bit of a cliche. You know, the 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 piper, the pan at the gates of paradise, um, who brings all you know all races and peoples together, becomes sentimental. But in this, it's part of the this the uncanny force of Harpo's persona is that is is that he is not an arty figure. Is there ever a moment in the Paramounts where Harpo is trying to communicate something where he's struggling or having a problem? No. It seems to me like that's the easiest thing in the world for him. But it's only when we get to MGM where he struggles. Yeah, right. Yeah. No, the only the only um the only anomalous moments are when it appears he actually can talk, like in in Coconuts when he leans over and whispers an important plot point in uh in gravity somebody's ear, kind of case. Um so yeah, no, it's the opposite of that. Also, you really get the sense that that he was the only person who who knew who knew 
how this character worked, that, it, that he had hit on something that really was an original. Um, I mean, I've never seen in any of the scripts the, 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 fa- the famous thing that they would just put in, you know, Harpo does something. But, right, it, right. but it is obvious when you look at a lot of the scripts that, that what is written for him is, is really a, a starting point for negotiation rather than mm-hmm. the finalized thing. There are lots <laughs> of jokes in these scripts, um, in the street scenes and in the bar scenes that, that are different or aren't used and things in the films that are used that aren't there. And there's a lovely bit at the end of this scene. Um, uh, right at the end, it says, miscellaneous suggestions for gags not yet placed in routine. And then there's a couple more <laughs> little ideas that were never used and, and quite right too. One of them is Harpo's radiator cap resembles a pigeon. He unscrews it to put in water and unknown to him, picks up a real pigeon and tries to put it on the radiator. So they, re- they really are guessing. You know? <laughs> really reaching, Yeah. <laughs> Wow, that almost sounds like a Buster Keaton gag from at the yes, circus. Yes, yes. Uh, well, um, anything else on the speakeasy scene before we head over to Thelma Todd's apartment? Uh, no, but let's stop at the pharmacy on the way. I, I got to pick up something first. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's go see the college widow. Yes. Before we meet her, actually, we meet uh, the maid, Laura, who is played by Teresa Harris. Um, this is one of very few roles for people of color in the films of the Marx Brothers. Um, and I think this one is, it's a slightly better part than being one of the guys who carries Groucho's rickshaw in, in Animal Crackers and not quite as good as being in the, uh, All God's Children number yeah, in yeah, Day at the yeah, Races. Um, but she does have, uh, screen presence and she is natural and it shows that she made dozens of films between the twenties and the fifties and occasionally did get a chance to do a little bit more than she does here. Teresa Harris. It should be noted that in the original script, um, we, we don't meet. Uh, Thelma here. We don't meet her for, for quite a while because this scene was originally written for Zeppo and, uh, the young lady who's sitting on his lap at the start of the film who has been almost completely written out, um, in, in, uh, somewhere between, um, between the shooting script and the, and, uh, the finished product. He originally sings the song to her with an extra verse at the start that we don't get. Uh, and we don't, we don't meet, uh, Thelma until Groucho phones her. Very interesting. Is this other woman? Um, th- there is a woman who appears in some stills. That'll be her, I think, yes. You know, this first scene with Zeppo and, and Thelma, it's a real red herring because when it starts, you're thinking, oh, here's Zeppo's uh, romantic interest following up on what he did yeah. in Monkey Business. But as the film progresses, we learn that Thelma's not really in love with him and uh, the pot goes in a totally different direction. That's true. Yeah, it, it's a it's a little bit of a loose flap, um, but we do get to hear for, for the first but not the last time in this film the Kalmar and Ruby song. Everyone says I love you. Everyone says I love you. The cop on the corner and the burglar too. The preacher in the pulpit and the man in the pew says I love you. Everyone, no matter who. The folks over 80 and the kid of two The captain and the sailor and the rest of the crew Says I love you It's a little bit like the theatrical agency scene where Zeppo gives the straight version first so that when the other brothers tackle it we get to hear their 
personalized versions. Uh, he's, he's fairly charming here. I always notice that he breaks off the tiniest bite of toast mm. in order to s- spread jam on it or something <laughs> and give it to her. I guess, I guess they just shoves it in her mouth. Yeah. <laughs> I guess they decided she couldn't actually bite the piece of bread on film. She's wonderful though, isn't she? Yeah. I mean, I think part of my 13 year old infatuation with the Marxists was probably assisted by the fact that those 30s heroines were such fetching, um, Women, Maureen O'Sullivan being a, a great favorite of mine. But Thelma Todd is wonderful. And, you know, a big hole, which I suspect you guys have filled in your own educations, is the Thelma Todd Zazu Pitts comedies, yeah. uh, which uh, which were so successful yeah. and made. I can't find trace of them. I was trying to do my due diligence. I'd love to see them sometime. I suspect they got to have good stuff. They must have good things in them. I'm going to point out something about Thelma here, which is going to affect the watching of this film for everybody for the rest of eternity, okay? <laughs> okay? You'll see that she has a birthmark on her right chin in this scene, uh-huh. which disappears mm-hmm. subsequently, uh-huh. only to reappear in the football scene finale, but now on her left chin. Uh-huh. I think she loaned it to Roscoe W. Chandler. <laughs> yeah, I was wondering whether Harpo had uh, once again absconded with somebody's birthmark. <laughs> <laughs> That's practically a Pruder film quality uh, inconsistency. <laughs> and, of course, I, you know, I, I, I hardly be, need be the only one to add that, of course, is her, she died tragically young, Thelma Todd, which, you know, does affect one's feeling of it. And in mis- circumstances, uh, I think, are still mysterious and perhaps tied to a kind of Hollywood Babylon uh, underworld stuff. That Not to sound too mysterious, but she died of carbon monoxide poisoning. But how she got into the garage with the carbon monoxide is still uncertain. Yeah, indeed. Yes, and and because of that, she always appears to be sort of doomed when we see her yes. on screen in the 30s. Uh, from Zeppo's song, um, we go to Harpo whistling the same song to a horse. Not for the first time, Harpo uh, making love in the old sense of the, of the phrase to a horse. Um, in this case, he and the horse are also stopping traffic while they eat their lunch on the street. Upgraded from a donkey in the original script. <laughs> oh, a lot of press items say that uh, Groucho says in a lot of press items when this film came out that it, the reason it's called Horse Feathers is because there isn't a horse in it. Um, uh-huh. and, and some of them note that there is a donkey. But I guess um, <laughs> by the time it came out, the donkey had been replaced with a horse. Can I just also throw out quickly that as a lyricist, it always is interesting to me that you read it exactly correctly. No, it's everyone says I love you. But of course, it's totally misstressed in the song. It's everyone says I love you, right? Which is which works with that charming melody, but actually totally misstresses the the English sentence. Very true. And it's also written in songwriter ease, wherein the word every is E-V apostrophe. Every, everyone. It's not everyone says I love you. And though I know we're going to get there, let me just throw in here that if there was a single revelation for me on this hundredth viewing of it, it's what a good guitar player Groucho is. He doesn't he oh, yeah. he he does it later on, but as an amateur jazz guitarist myself, I was I had forgotten how skillfully he works his way through a complicated chord structure. Yeah, he really knows what he's doing. Yeah. 
Um, the cop who uh, starts writing tickets to Harpo on the street, and Harpo responds by writing tickets of his own and issuing them to the cop, uh, is played by Ben Taggart, the captain of the ship from Monkey Business. Um, and uh, this is a pretty triumphant moment for Harpo. The, the gag where the cop uh, shows him his badge and then Harpo opens up his coat to reveal many more badges than any cop has ever carried is a variation on something from the coconuts and I'll say she is where Harpo would open his coat and there'd be a flask inside. <laughs> oh, yeah. And it's lovely as well that, that, that Harpo, in his mind, isn't trumping him in terms of his authority. Uh, you know, the, the guy is showing his badge to indicate that he's a cop and he means business, whereas Harpo just sees one badge and thinks, I can do better than that. I've got lots of them. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, anything else on this bit? Is there anything uh, cut from this scene, Matthew? Um, not particularly, no. There was a, a bit more uh, or the, or alternate stuff with the horse-stroke donkey, but, uh, but the, no, the cop is, is more or less as we see. The only other thing in this scene I want to point out is that we get the first of multiple banana gags in this film. There's lots of yes. banana jokes. <laughs> and that, that zip-up banana is, is a real old, uh, you know, that's, that's done, done long and good service in, in comedy, particularly um, in the, the, the British musical tradition. It's a, it's a very much a, a well-known old, old uh, snorter. Oh, that's, that's interesting. It's almost hard to imagine it even reading on stage. Mm, yeah. Uh, well, that takes us into this scene in Groucho's office with the unison professors. The trouble is we're neglecting football for education. Exactly. The, the professor, professor is right. And um, a, a lovely example of, of uh, um, improvements being made in, in, in the process. That, that, that wonderful first image of him, of him using the telephone to crack nuts. Uh, ab- absolutely lovely. In the, ri- in the original shooting script, we see him sharpening a pencil, which he then uses to cut open an orange. So somewhere along the line, someone said, no, we can do better than that. Oh, they certainly did. And there's something about, oh, there's always the sense in these films that the rest of the world, the world, not the, the characters who are not Marx Brothers, are always this kind of faceless uh, uh, symbol of the establishment. But I think this is the only time, except during songs, when they are actually speaking in unison. They have the exact same things to say at the exact same Mm. time. That's That's what what I I think. Oh, you do, do you? Well, you're wrong again. And it's often the most uh, brown-nosing kind of, of course, the professor is right. Um, and uh, the waxing Roth line discussed earlier and much celebrated takes place here. I've noticed um, uh, watching it last night with Amanda, my wife, um, and other recent viewings, too. Um, this is a case of the setup often getting a laugh. The dean is furious. He's waxing Roth. Uh, that gets a laugh because it's such a stylized way of expressing what she has to say. And I just love the pluck and nobility of that performance. Uh, Sheila Bromley, I think she's called. She really should be credited. She's got two lines. They're both absolute killers. Uh, you know, she must have said, oh, I've got, I've got a speaking role in the new, uh, Marx Brothers film. I've got two lines. And then she reads what they are. She has to come in and deliver these absolutely thankless setups. Now, do you think she was a holdover from the previous, uh, president of the college? <laughs> <laughs> Probably. Am I getting too deep into this? No. Yeah, the... <laughs> right. That's a good point. So this this woman's working life has changed dramatically in the last day or so, hasn't it? 
<laughs> Can I add one little note? A, a, a classic bit of total overreading and overinterpretation. Though Roth is not exclusively a Jewish name, it's mostly a Jewish name in America. It's famously the name of the two great Jewish writers, Henry Roth and then Philip Roth. And I always thought of it as being a little one more of those little things where the the Jewish background of the Marxists kind of leaks in sideways in a mm-hmm. non-Jewish context. I mean, mm-hmm. the most famous being, you know, uh, hooray for Captain Spaulding, the African explorer. Did someone call me Schnorr? Which had to be totally <laughs> opaque to anybody who was not... A, a Jewish, a Yiddish speaker, or at least conversant with them. And there are lots of little moments like that in Groucho's comedy, right? Where he, where you're acutely aware that he's Jewish and impersonating somebody named Wagstaff or somebody named Spaulding. And I've always thought in a quiet way, that's one more of those moments. It also reminds me of um, how in his first film, Woody Allen decided to call himself Virgil Starkwell. Yeah. The, the the least Jewish name you could possibly conceive, yes. Um, other than perhaps Quincy Adams Wagstaff. Yes, exactly, exactly. Uh, Groucho calls Thelma Todd and makes a date to meet her in her bed. Um, Harpo and Chico appear with the ice, and this is also something that happens throughout this film. Characters, I guess it's always Harpo, in this case with Chico taking the straight line route from point A to point B, even if it means walking over a piece of furniture. They just walk into the room and the desk is in front of them, so they step up onto it and over it in order to get to the safe where they're putting the ice. Um, Anybody disturbed by Harpo burning books? Nope. Hey, I thought we weren't going to discuss politics. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's one of those, it's one of those things that because it, it does remind one of a horrifying event from history. Um, it seems to be a reference, even though it isn't. Well, can I? All right, I'll take I'll take that on. I feel like I'm on all right. college college bowl. You know, I'll I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll I'll try that. At a deeper level, there is a way in which the the anarchic spirit of the Marx Brothers that we uh, adore has an element of nihilism in it. Um, which is very much something they have in common with the great Dada artists of Europe at the same period. And as a consequence, you know, there, there's always the, the fact about Dada or the Marxists or any, uh, anarchist comedy that it has equal contempt for every kind of authority, structure, institutional learning, uh, of all kinds. And, you, you know, the, one of the things that distinguishes, uh, Duck Soup from, say, the great dictator, in its time, is the Duck Soup is an anti-war movie. It's equally anti-war implicitly, whether you're on the right side or the wrong side. Every it, the implication is always that every war is a Fredonia, uh, Fredonia-style war. So it's not a it's not an explicitly political thing. It doesn't isn't offensive in that way, but it does make you reflect on the way in which that kind of Dada humor is deliberately, in a certain sense, amoral. I think an interesting way to think about this gag is what if it was something besides books? You know, if if in that office there was a, a shelf with a lot of uh, potted plants on it and Harpo uh, were throwing those into the fire, right. um, would it would it have the same feeling to it? And my sense is that it would not, um, that he's in a college, he's using a pitchfork to 
not only <laughs> hurl books into the fire, but to do it with delight, you know, maniacally, the same way he does everything, um, with a little mischievous sense of fun to it. Um, and so it does have to be books. That's what he's doing. He's showing um, that the um, mechanics of academic establishment are of no use to him, and the most fun you could possibly have with them is to destroy them. But one thing I, I do like about it is it doesn't um, – I mean, there is that, that, that famous Chico line, isn't there? He, he gets mad because he can't read. Yes. Um, we we mm-hmm. don't – it's not that kind of a joke. He, he doesn't – he's not putting that first book in the fire because he's frustrated at, at his inability to, to, uh, to come to it on its own terms. Because in actual fact, we see him open it up, look at it, and enjoy something in it. He has a big grin on his well, face. That's true. He's obviously just enjoyed something. And then he closes it and throws it in the fire and finds he enjoys is that just as much too so it's it's a much subtler and and a uh, better joke very for that, true yeah uh, my only other observation about this scene is that it takes a little too long for them to get the seal where yes. they want him yes it does and where's groucho the seal? and where's chico the seal? have to say where's the seal where's yeah. the seal well, I mean, it, it so actually that, um, it cuts, doesn't it, to, to to Harpo bringing on the seal. So they they could have just they could have just cut the previous bit earlier and just had a couple of uh, where's the seals. I, I mean, Harpo should have left after the first one, and then we cut to the slightly longer shot and bringing him on. Yeah, that is clumsy. It's a rare case of imperfect timing. Mm. Maybe more on the part of the editing than the performance here. But um, by the time we see that seal, we are expecting it. It feels like overselling the joke in the way that, that you know, Mel Brooks, bless him, does all the time. Um, you know, <laughs> they're, they're, where's the seal? Where's the seal? Th- think, audience, think seal. You know, it's a bit, it feels like that. I don't know if that is what it is. You know, comb the desert. It's, it's a bit like that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay, now once again, I don't want to get into a big thing here, but I am certain that there was some mess up in this whole exchange between Groucho and Chico with the 200 hours for ice, 2,000 hours. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't even make comedic sense. Somebody said 200 when they meant 2,000 or or vice versa. And uh, I will go to my grave convinced of this. So don't even try and talk me out of it. (laughs) And it is, I I think, a legacy of that missing section where he gives him different prices for different uh, types of ice based on the different spirits and and that stuff. It's a bit, it's a little bit like a very quick version of um, how much he charges for rehearsing. You know, there's there's some stuff about, you know, $20 $20 for the ice, 100 for the, you know, and all that stuff. Um, all right. Well, uh, that takes us into the classroom and the possible taste of um, the school act that they performed in vaudeville. The professor is Robert Grieg, familiar as the butler from Animal Crackers. There is, a, I think, also maybe those who want to see this as a version of their vaudeville act. I think one thing that contributes to that impression is the way on a lot of his punchlines, Chico stands up. He rises at his little school desk to do his cirrhosis joke and other lines. It feels very vaudevillian, mm. the mechanics of standing up to deliver those punchlines. Yeah. Um, well, what are what are your uh, what are your noteworthy bits in this in this scene, guys? I always like Groucho's joke about the slide. I thought he was safe at second, but it was very close. I never got it until a couple of years ago, unfortunately. <laughs> oh my! Because it's such an American. Reference. Yeah, yeah. I didn't have a clue what it meant. Yes, that uh, broke me up when I was 12, and it breaks me up today. Um, you know, the um, uh, if your heart beats anything but diamonds and clubs, your partner cheating is cheating, uh, or your wife. That's a that's a beautifully turned uh, that's a beautifully turned joke. 
and the the uh, the very happy uh, change, which is uh, Chico's lovely line, "When you're going to cut the watermelon open," which is such a such an iconic line um, in, in the original script. Uh, it, he says, "Any questions?" and and Chico says, uh, "Yes, what's got four wheels and flies a garbage wagon?" And they very very um, happily, I think, took took out an old joke and put in that lovely surprising, uh, which he says with such joy, there's such a big smile on his face. When are you going to cut the watermelon open? Yes. That four wheels and flies gag—that I would believe is from mm. fun in high school. Could I mean, that sounds be. very. Yeah. In fact, I think a line that has been confirmed from that is uh, the garbage man is here. Tell him we don't want it. Mm. Which is about on the same level and as well as the same theme. Uh, let us follow the corpuscle on its journey. Um, always nice. Groucho seems to be determined to get through this lecture, even though he takes it no more seriously than his students do. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, and out of nowhere comes his advice about uh, burning the candle at both ends, which uh, allows Harpo to do his Edna St. Vincent Millay impression. Exactly. <laughs> um, the uh, scene is is a little shorter than than the the version that was originally shot. That's in the the cutting continuity. Um, we're very familiar with the fact that the, the 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 subsequent boudoir scene fades earlier than it should. This one does slightly too. Uh, there's just a little bit more of uh, of Groucho being hit and uh, and um, sending out instructions like uh, bury me near a radio. I don't want to miss Amos and Andy. Um, <laughs> and they obviously just thought let's let's just trim this down uh, just a, just a tad. And Matthew, in the annotated uh, Marx Brothers, you you did, it seems, everything possible to um, trace this uh, according to von Steinmetz mm. <laughs> sentence and couldn't find it. It, exactly, yeah. It's a, it's. A, I don't know what to make of the, all the all the technical stuff there because because I mean it's it obviously most of it is gibberish, um, but it is using you know the, the 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 individual concepts are all real concepts. They've just been kind of thrown into a, into a soup. Um, but it would seem I would have thought it would be much easier to just get a book and 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 read a bit of it. Um, so so it would be nice to think that somewhere out there there is a a, a textbook with uh, with uh, um, you know von Steinmetz on on these white phagocytes, but uh, I've yet to find it. <laughs> well, that takes us by way of the pea shooters back to the place we all really want to be in Thelma Todd's apartment. Um, now, I I would I want to say about this scene that I, there's there's one thing about this scene that is its most remarked quality and. We'll talk about that in a second, but I want to preface it by saying that uh, to me, this is the best scene in the movie. Um, the, the running in and out of Thelma Todd's apartment, it's, mm-hmm. it's a direct descendant of the Napoleon scene and I'll say she is. Um, it even has in this case, some of the same lines, I think, because Will B. Johnstone is credited here as one of the screenwriters. But you know, this is a scene where it, we really are watching the stage act again. All of the chaos is generated just by the performances. There's no tricked up props. There's, um, I don't think there's any cinematic trickery at all. It's just the brothers and their leading lady um, generating, you know, great farce. And among the thousands of, of brilliantly funny moments, I think one of uh, one of their very best structured jokes, which is you have Chico and Harpo constantly coming in with blocks of ice. She's saying, I don't want any ice. And they're throwing them out the window. And then eventually Harpo just comes through throws it out the window straight away without any interaction at all. Very, <laughs> yeah. very good. Very, very good. 
Uh, however, if you if you talk about this scene with Marx Brothers fans, you're likely to hear more about the condition it's in than what happens in it. How do you feel don't, about don't this, Bob? Don't get him started. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, let me give a little bit of context here. Um, after Duck Soup, there was a lot of question about whether the Marxists had any future in movies, whether they had any appeal at all. Luckily, that was proven wrong by A Night at the Opera. But after Night at the Opera, there was a vacuum because, you know, the Marxists were only making one film a year. It was going to be a long time until there was going to be another film in the theaters. And Paramount mm. looked at this and said, hey, wait a minute, we got these five films that we own. You know, let's put something out. Jump on the bandwagon here. Um, coconuts and uh, animal crackers were obviously not going to work. They were they, they were antiquated, even by 1936 standards. That wasn't going to fly. And Duck Soup uh, hadn't been a big success, so they weren't going to re-release that one. So that left Monkey Business and Horse Feathers. Um, actually, Monkey Business was the first choice, and it was submitted to the Hayes office, and they did get back a big list of notes of things that needed to be cut, but for whatever reason, Paramount changed their minds. They didn't re-release Monkey Business, and none of those cuts were made. They did go ahead and re-release Horse Feathers. Now, we don't actually have the notes for what needed to be cut for that, but we can imagine the list was quite extensive. And we can only speculate because, like I said, we don't have the actual paperwork, but mm -hmm. it seems pretty obvious that while things were being cut uh, for Hayes Office reasons that some other damage was being done to the negative. And that's basically where we are with this Connie Bailey scene. You know, some of it is legitimate Hayes Office cuts and some of it is damage caused inadvertently. Uh, we don't have any of the details on that, but there's really well, no other I've, explanation. I've, I've gone through it with a fine tooth comb yeah. this time round. I've gone through it with watching it line by line, looking at two scripts. And from by my count, there are 10, 10 missing things. Um, so I'll, I'll run through them if that's okay. Um, the first one is a line that is cut out very cleanly. When Groucho says, you're ruining that boy, you're ruining him, he, he originally then says, uh, why can't you do as much for me? That's been cut out, been cut out very cleanly. So, so that could be censorship. Uh -huh. um, after that, uh, when uh, Groucho says that Iceman stuff leaves me cold, uh, again, you can see a cut there where he originally said, and if I leave you cold, I'll not be the man I used to be. That could be censorship. Yeah. The next one is um, uh, take a dame away from his fuck, where he's meant to say father. That's obviously print damage. Uh, similarly, number four, be a, the lo lovely line, be a lamp in the window for my wandering boy, is actually yes, yes. there There will always be a lamp in the window for my wandering boy. Ah. So that's a, that's a bit of bit of print damage, not censorship. After that, uh, there's just another bit of uh, let's see. Uh, let's see what. Oh, yes, I was on your lap is let's see where we were. So that's print damage. Uh, number six, uh, you've got more students than the college has become more students than the college. That's print damage. I, I don't know. That very well could have been a censorship thing. But it's only half the line is missing, though. All, all the other ones are done very neatly. He still he still says more students than the college. <laughs> if the whole line had gone, fine. <laughs> but it, all that's gone is you've got. Maybe the Hayes office uh, note was so specific that it just mentioned certain words and they were trying to cut around those words. Um, number seven, I think, is the really contentious one because it is an eminently cuttable line if you're on that 
that trajectory uh baravelli you overcome me uh all right but remember um it, it was your idea um <laughs> that 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 sounds like a very cuttable line but once again we've still got most of it there's just a little slice taken out of the middle of it so a question mark for that one um number eight lady i like you you've uh, got something i don't know what it is groucho says if he thinks i'm going to tell him he's crazy again only a little tiny bit of groucho's line is gone not the punchline. that's print damage uh number nine uh there's a missing visual section uh with groucho hiding under a rug which has been taken out in its entirety my guess is that that was cut for pace uh and then as we know um the scene fades as we have it and originally went on quite a bit longer um Again, the fact that the previous scene uh, does the same thing makes me think that this too was done, perhaps regrettably, for pace. My guess is that if we do turn up uh, a perfectly undamaged version, uh, that this sequence will still be missing. Um, there is some good visual stuff with Harpo, um, but it's it's basically more of the same. And I think the decision was just made to let let's fade it here. There's some some very meandering Groucho dialogue, which is the kind of stuff that makes me laugh a lot. But mm. you can see why others might not. Um, in in the sequence where uh, Thelma appears to have Harpo's feet because Harpo's legs are sticking out from under the the divan uh groucho says are those your feet i could use you in the football team you're developing a terrific pair of dogs there miss bailey you shouldn't wear your rubbers in the house it's very bad for you you know what happened to king oscar well he wore his rubbers in the house and they had an awful time with him he got pink (laughs) gums and his best friends wouldn't talk to him so you can imagine you know somebody said yeah i think i think we'll i think we'll end it there and this is the the specifics of each joke are slightly adjusted but this is so straight out of the Napoleon scene where that happens uh, Josephine has what uh, her what seem to be her feet are actually Harpo's feet and Groucho's lines there are if those are your feet you go fight the war and I'll stay here he says <laughs> he says you're getting an awful pair of gondolas Josephine so okay yeah. very Dogs, close yeah, <laughs> yeah. And for some reason, these cuts seem to have been made to the master negative. Now, the Marx Brothers had terrible luck keeping their master negatives to their films intact. Mm. I mean, you know, Animal Crackers, the original version, was lost for almost a century before it luckily turned up a few years ago. And, you know, Night at the Opera, we're still looking for. We don't know if we'll ever find the uh, uncut version of that. And here's another one, Horse Feathers. Uh, The last verified sighting, of the uncut version seems to have been in the early 1970s at a retrospective in New York City, where uh, Susan Marx's personal print was flown out and shown, and unfortunately disappeared afterwards. This is awful. This is an awful situation. An awful, awful situation. <laughs> well, when, a, when an intact print of horse feathers turns up, I will be delighted to see this scene in purer form, but I'm always mm. delighted to see it anyway. Yes, exactly. Mm. Uh, that takes us right into what, if it's a music lesson, I'm a ring-tailed monkey. Is that what uh, Jennings has to say about the Chico <laughs> uh, music lesson with Thelma Todd? Now, if you don't love this scene, or you're one of those people who skips ahead during any musical number in the Marx film, I want you to turn the podcast off right now, because <laughs> this is just about the best three minutes in a Marx Brothers film ever. Mm. Yeah, you mean Chico's... Uh... Yeah, singing and playing. And what makes it a real shame is that he never did anything like this ever again. Yes. Mm. 
And and also that, you know, Kalmar and Ruby have clearly written these lyrics for Chico in character. Everyone says I love you. The great big mosquito when he sting you. The fly when he gets stuck on the flight paper too says I love you. Every time the cow says moo, she's a making the bull be very happy too. And the rooster when he holla cocky dooly dooly doo says I love you. Interestingly, they're not in the in the shooting script. In uh, in the shooting script, Zeppo's lyrics are there and Groucho's lyrics are there. Uh, Chico's are not. Oh, okay. Maybe I'm maybe I'm being too quick to attribute those words to the songwriters. I wonder. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just the the slight possibility that it, you know the idea for him to sing rather than just play um, emerged. You know, the very last minute, and he came up with them himself. It's just possible. Yeah. Uh, his, um, you know, mangled musical history lesson here is, is quite delightful. Um, mm. and, um, yeah, there are some reflections on Chico's relationship with Christopher Columbo, uh, in my recent, <laughs> there's nothing like Liberty, the Marx Brothers in America, which you can find on YouTube right now. Um, the, the chemistry with him and Thomas is, it's great. They're, they're, they're really enjoying each other. I particularly yeah. like at the very end where in the background you see them tickling each other. Mm. This is one of those times on film where you can kind of see the legendary way with women that Chico had. To uh, Chico, mm. yeah, yeah. The looks day that he gives her during the uh, his piano number, I, I can't imagine those were in the script. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not in the film script, but very much in his personal script. <laughs> and then he plays uh, the song "Collegiate." That's his piano specialty here. It's a rare example of there being a thematic reason for Chico to play what he's playing. Collegiate was also used in Animal Crackers as Harpo's entrance music, and it was written by Mo Jaffe and Nat Box, which I'm telling which you... Which I never just... spotted for years that it was the same tune, because it's, it's played so differently, isn't it? Yeah, it's very slow in Animal films. Crackers. Yeah, yeah, it took me a very long time to spot that. Any opportunity to say Nat Box, I'm going to jump <laughs> I just want to warn you guys about that. Go on, uh, say it again. Bonks! And during uh, <laughs> during Chico's solo, we get the only time on film Groucho ever comments on his brother's musical work. I've got to stay here. But there's no reason why you folks shouldn't go out into the lobby till this thing blows over. Yes, it's almost like he's talking to an believe 50 years too early. And I love this little, the little nonsense piano that's going on during this little exchange with Groucho. I love good music. I love that so too. Right, let's get out of here. Sit down. That might not even be Chico. That, that might have been something that was dubbed in. No I wonder about that. And, and if it is Chico, is he playing something specific there, or is he just noodling? Um, and that takes us to, uh, yeah, the locker room specifically. Now, before we dive into this, just a point in border here, it isn't until this scene that we actually learn that Zeppo is a player. We've heard him talk about football, yeah. but we didn't know that he was one of the players. Uh, some of the press items suggest that Zeppo is playing a football, a college football star in this film, that that's his role. Um, but there's really nothing in the movie to suggest yeah. that he, he's a remarkable player in any way. Um, and speaking of press items, there's a, a cut moment here where Zeppo is being pressed or ironed by Groucho. Mm. It's strange that that image of Groucho ironing Zeppo even became the artwork <laughs> on the videotape and the DVD when they were later released. And nobody thought to say, oh, well, that's not in the movie, so maybe we shouldn't put it on the box. Yeah. <laughs> 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 it's 
And yeah, the stuff where um, Chico comes out of the locker and him and Groucho get into this whole thing about the uh, driver and the chauffeur. I mean, that's great mm. stuff. Uh, I think it gets overshadowed a bit in this film by the swordfish exchange, but uh, this is almost as good. It's it's really good. Right, yeah, water. right, right. Uh, I kind of like Chico's little scene with David Landau, uh, the way Chico so quickly acquiesces as soon as he's offered a bribe um, to, to give away the signals. Hey, wait a minute. These are the wrong signals. These are Darwin signals. You think I'd give you $500 for Darwin signals? Why, they cost me 200 I guess I got to make a little profit. Uh, it's, a, it's a real case of uh, those are my principles, and if you don't like them, I have others. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> Uh, Harpo gets to play the harp next. He plays it. Um, this is kind of Harpo's uh, balcony scene. Yeah. Uh, Thelma up in the balcony and Harpo plays everyone yeah, says, says I love you. I think we can't praise enough how much everyone says I love you to, to probably stress it adds to the movie. It's a, it's a wonderful, charming melody and it's yeah. beautifully varied and hearing it over and over again gives Horse Feathers a kind of continuity uh, that's 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 absolutely wonderful, and one wishes that could have been repeated elsewhere. It's very much part of the period. Two blind loves. Yeah, but oh my god, two blind loves, babes in the woods. We've got it oh so bad, but isn't it good? It's funny it came out of my head. Yeah, you've got that. I, um, I thought I would have, I would have totally forgotten it, but yeah, you know the um, uh, and the the variations on it are wonderful, and it's part of the. The time, as I said, you know, I mentioned uh, a couple hours ago, uh, Rogers and Hart working on um, Love Me Tonight and so on around the same time at Paramount are trying, playing around with the same kind of ideas, creating continuity for a score through repetition and variation. Yeah, and thank God we didn't have to hear Two Blind Loves as many times as we, we get the privilege of hearing Everyone Says mm-hmm. I Love You. Everyone says I love you. <laughs> Um, well, now uh, we get another uh, excellent rendition of Everyone Says I Love You, performed by Groucho on the guitar in a canoe. Everyone says I love you, but just what they say it for I never knew. It's just inviting trouble for the poor sucker who says I love you. Uh, complete with a reference to an American tragedy. You know, this is the first time I've been out in a canoe since I saw the American tragedy. Which, again, one, th- one, sus- one suspects is a Perlman touch on, you know, it's exactly the kind of uh, yes. highbrow literary reference that one would uh, associate uh, with Perlman. I-, I mean, not unlike the similar moment with um, the Eugene O'Neill parody in, uh, in Animal Crackers, right? You know, excuse me while I have a strange interlude. Uh, and it's good. And as I said before, uh, Groucho is very adept on the guitar. I know that seems like a, a terribly trivial thing to point out, but he actually plays, a, plays this complicated um, number with many diminished chords in passing uh, very adeptly. Yes, and in a very relaxed way. Yes. Is there any other guitar playing moment for Groucho in the movies? In the in the corpus? Yeah, in Go West and then a little bit in Monkey Business, and then he also plays it in his uh, solo film, Girl in Every Port. Oh, yes, he does. But but I think this is his most um, uh, resolute and also his most kind of solo performance. Oh, Girl yes, in Every yeah. Port, I guess. Um, 
Yeah, it's certainly lovely. I wonder, Adam, do you detect the hand of Perelman at all in um, the the baby talk passage when when Thelma Todd goes into that baby talk and yes. Groucho mocks her? That sounds to me very much like uh, Perelman mocking uh, colloquial. Yes, and yeah, it, you can find similar things. You know, in the little playlets Perelman is writing right around that time when there's when it you know his his revulsion at anything saccharine. Yeah. Is very much part of that of of his uh, own own take. And again, it's now there's a, a sorting mechanism here that may be completely unreliable. You're inclined to think anything that's not a joke joke, um, but that depends on a kind of uh, lack of a better word, a higher level of uh, linguistic play. You're inclined to ascribe to Perlman, and as you say, we don't actually know that, but that certainly it certainly has that feel. It is a credit to the other writers on this picture and also Monkey Business that there are so many lines that, you know, could have been Paramount, could have been like the greatest comic essayist of the day, or could right. have been any of these other guys too. They, they good were, comedy, all these good comedy writers. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's just as, it's, it's not at all, uh, it's not implausible. I do think to return to a kind of broader point is that, uh, Groucho is thrilling throughout Horse Feathers exactly because he has, a note of kind of querulous coldness, like his turning on Thelma Todd, the gorgeous and seductive Thelma Todd in the canoe, right? Because she indulges in icky baby talk. And that's a very Perlman-esque pose, right? (laughs) Turning even on, even on your own lechery when it's linguistically inept. Um. (laughs) It's funny, isn't it, that even before the baby talk starts, Groucho, who has been sort of lusting after Thelma Todd all through this picture, but as soon as he gets her alone and on a canoe, no less, he's only annoyed by her and indifferent to her. (laughs) Yes. It's, you know, the mangy Lothario that that's, you know, it's it's uh, it's a wonderful thing. It's kind of like his his real life, uh, you know, his marriages, isn't it? Yeah. He uh, he he pursues these these beautiful women, and then uh, when he when he's uh, successful, he he just wants to play his guitar. Yeah, and the somewhat embittered lyrics to Groucho's version of "Everyone Says mm. I Love You" do seem yeah. to resonate a little bit with his real life, don't they? Yeah. Uh, our friend uh, Scott Alexander, the screenwriter, has determined with, I'd say, something like 90% certainty, maybe 95% certainty, that this scene was filmed at a place in Los Angeles called Echo Park, uh, and that this is Echo Park Lake, which is in the middle of it. Oh. Scott was looking at some home movies from his mother's family when his mother was a, a child, uh, in which his grandparents and and mother as a baby were in a boat on this lake and Scott realized, Oh my goodness, that's the lake from horse feathers. Um, and in my, my piece on YouTube, there's nothing like Liberty. We, we put the footage next to, you know, side by side and it really does seem true. And as Scott points out, it's, it's pretty close to the Paramount lot. So it would make sense logistically too, that, that that's where they did this. Well, I hope one of our LA based listeners will take a dive to the bottom of that lake and uh, grab the guitar. Uh, which changes, doesn't it? Just yeah. before yes. he throws yeah. it in the water. Yeah. yeah. They yeah. replace it with a, a more expendable guitar than the one Groucho was playing. <laughs> a very short missing uh, segment as well, which does appear to have been shot. Um, when, when Thelma goes in, uh, Groucho jumped in after her and instead uh, saved the duck, which is why in the <laughs> final shot from the scene, um, he's clearly wet and you can see the duck in the in the canoe. The duck is in the canoe. There's also an earlier shot where the duck is 
behind the canoe and seems maybe to be a fake duck in that shot um, because it's he's traveling at the exact speed of the canoe right it's behind on the string, it. I think, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And yeah. the duck also seems to have no reaction to Thelma putting the oar in the water, like right, right in his face. Mm. And of course, this is all a little bittersweet because a few years later, Thelma Todd really did drown in a lake. Oh, or maybe I've got that wrong. <laughs> uh, hey, the movie's almost over, guys. Uh, we have our, our kidnapping intrigue with Harpo and Chico and Mullen and McCarthy. It's uh, also um, another of the of the really big missing Harpo bits, um, the the Pinky's kennel scene where his hat changes from from uh, from dog catcher to kidnapper and also catnapper. Uh, he, he gets a cat. Quite a lengthy uh, lengthy visual Harpo bit missing here. Um, reading it today, no great loss. Probably just just you know cut to speed things up the only question is is when um but yes that's that's missing it is funny that when playing a dog catcher it's just harpo as always but with a sign on his hat that says dog catcher so i mean in a day at the races what if he had been in his normal costume with a sign on his hat that says jockey (laughs) and i get the impression that he's not really working for the city or anything that he's more of a a freelance dog catcher yes Yes. self-appointed dog catcher (laughs) Yes. Uh, I like the fact that in his cage on wheels, um, with all these yapping dogs inside, his harp is in there too. He he lugs that around with him on his his daily rounds. Mm. And originally lots of other musical instruments were supposed to be in there as well. Oh, really? Hmm. Don't know why. Uh, Well, what do you guys like in the kidnapping scene? I, I think there's a little bit of gold here. Yeah, this is all great. I love when they're uh, locked in the room and uh, trying to get out and tying the bed, throw the rope out the window, all that stuff. Uh, What are you trying to do, break my neck? (laughs) But I should mention, actually, I have to mention that Chico is obviously hobbling here. This must be the point where they started filming again after his accident. Um, Mm. There's a shot of them running up the stairs. It's obviously a double. And when they get into the apartment, um, Chico is hobbling and literally takes a seat. Uh, He doesn't want any part of this uh, physical nonsense with Harpo. And... uh, the few times where he is called upon to do physical stuff, his back is conveniently to the camera because uh, they had to use double. What I don't get, though, is why they use such a bad double in, 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 in the football match bit. Because, you know, I mean, he's, he's a fairly ordinary looking guy physically, Checo. There's nothing, there's nothing, but this, this bloke doesn't, he's, even the hat doesn't fit, does it? It's like, like they've just, it's like a, it's a last minute decision, which it couldn't have been because they knew going into to shooting that, that, it, that they were going to be using a double. But he's an appallingly bad one, isn't he? Well, I think it's, you know, it's a reminder, which is a useful one, of the improvisational quality of these movies and of the reality still staggering to contemplate that nobody engaged in making them had any expectation that 70 years later people would still be discussing them much less going over them with you know frame by frame punctiliousness to to figure them out Uh, you know it's it's a basic underlying contradiction in everything that the marxists did is that they were not made for all time in the self-conscious way that chaplin's movies were and yet they are for all time Mm. and it, it some of the and it's exactly because Nobody cared that much that they got a certain kind of freedom, which then gets, you know, which you then is manifested in the fact that it said, oh, well, just does he look like Chekhov? Who cares? He'll, you know, he'll he'll work. It'll be okay. You know, 
And that's the that's the spirit of it. I wonder if, as in Animal Crackers, the guy was Chico's stand-in, and so that's who they grabbed. Um, yeah. But it's also occurred to me, I hate to say it, but Horse Feathers next year will be 90 years old. Um, and it's fresher than a lot of what is in cinemas yeah. right now. Um, it, it's a it's a truth about so much great comedy of this kind, kind of anarchic, satiric, technically old comedy. This this kind of thing is that it sort of can't be made with an eye to the ages in order to survive the ages. It's like you know, yes. it's like the Monty Python stuff from the late sixties and early seventies. You know, it's a miracle it didn't get you know taped over as so much stuff did at the BBC in that period, only because it caught on in America and so on. But it's a contradiction in comedy. You, if you try and make it for the ages, it won't last. And if you don't make it for the ages, the ages will look at it and say, why didn't they make it for the ages? <laughs> yes. And, and film art generally. I mean, the film history is is full of, of movies that were advertised as, you know, this is the film your grandchildren will right. still be talking about in years <laughs> time. And nobody, nobody's got a clue what that film is anymore. Uh, whereas all this other stuff, which, which, is, which is just ephemeral, uh, you know, um, assembly line product, um, is, it's still here and we're still... Yes, exactly. You know, for a film that's as timeless as Horse Feathers, there are still quite a number of contemporary references and, and jokes and things that really, you really need the annotated Marx Brothers book to decipher. Yeah, in a way, it's it's even more of its time than some of their other efforts. But uh, as with that strange quality about old satire that both you, Adam, and you, Matthew, have written about, uh, what was once uh, what what once threatened to make these films seem dated to us now only contributes to their interesting otherworldly quality. Um, mm. I wonder. I mean, these films probably didn't seem quite as strange then as they do now. Um, but thankfully, uh, I, I doubt that they seemed uh, any funnier then. Uh, the football finale. Uh, Bob, you identify it as uh, one of your favorites among the climactic Marx Brothers scenes. Yes. Um, in my mind, at least, the Marxes did three great uh, finales, and they all came in a row. Horse Feathers, Duck Soup, and United at the Opera. And I think what makes them all work, even though they're totally different types of uh, uh, scenes, is the fact that the characters are never lost. Uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on, a lot of big explosive gags, but uh, the characters are true to themselves, and they're still acting like Groucho, Harpo, Chico, and uh, unfortunately, Zeppo. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Chico's audibles are just wonderful. Again, if you're a, a football fan and you understand, um, Matthew, it's, I suppose it's a little provincial, but if you are a football fan, the idea that he's calling out the plays at the line, shouting them out is irresistible. Well, for me, I'll have to admit that I I think I know um, uh, perhaps less than any British person about American football. I, I really can't follow it. And, and that may be the reason I've never really loved this sequence. Although many of the individual gags are quite strong, and I do laugh at a lot of them, especially um, Groucho's uh, Mr. Moskowitz's um, joke um and that arthur sheikman cameo he's sitting sitting right next to sheikman uh, at that desk there mm. um but for me it's more a matter of incidental gags being triumphant rather than the whole sequence uh, really working for me i do wonder if the um the chariot the, the garbage wagon chariot that uh, ultimately delivers them to victory 
would have been perceived as a Ben-Hur reference at the time. I know there was a silent Ben-Hur oh, yeah. a few years before Horse Feathers. Delivers them to victory and to the cover of Time magazine. Let's not yes. forget. Indeed, yeah. I did a piece once, oddly enough, about that Ben-Hur because um, Irene Selznick was the on on in Rome when they were filming it because her father, Louis Mayer, rescued it. And they did, Brownlow and Gill again did a restoration of it with a new score. And I accompanied uh, Irene Selznick out to, to see it. And it was, uh, you know, it was the beginning of Louis B. Mayer's uh, uh, hegemony <laughs> over MGM, which would later, you know, host the Marx Brothers. So, yes, I think that is a Ben-Hur joke. Absolutely. The other thing that's sort of fun for me about this as a football fan, Noah, is that uh, it's a kind of relic you can see in the wherever they got the, the football inserts. Um, of uh, pre-T formation football. You know, this is, you know, what they call uh, single wing football being played. Okay, I teased this earlier, so I better uh, pay it off. Um, this football game was shot at the Occidental College um, outside of L.A., and the, the college is still there, and the football stadium still looks remarkably like it did back in the day. It's a small place, you know, and they probably couldn't have used more than like 30 or 40 extras when they filmed the football scene for shots where they needed people in the background. Most of the time, they just put in stock footage of big crowds and other football games. However, there is one shot which is very curious. It's when Harpo first arrives at the stadium and he's rolling in on his garbage can uh, chariot, you know, and he's going by the stands and there's a ton of people cheering him on. Um, that This doesn't really mesh with anything else in the scene, and it had to have been yeah. filmed somewhere else. And Noah had mentioned this track event, uh, Olympic uh, qualifier, and this must have been where this one shot came from, because it is the only moment in the entire scene where you see uh, one of the Marxes actually in a big stadium with a big crowd. Nothing else uh, matches this. It's surprising that we can't find some some reference to that somewhere, isn't it? Of all the, all those people, you know, and, and Harpo came on. So let me just say, as the resident football expert on uh, this podcast, that this is a great scene. I guess it's like the uh, bridge scene in Animal Crackers, where the more you know about it, the more you'll appreciate it. But mm. there, there's a lot of great stuff here. Groucho talking to the wrong team. I love when Harpo appears in the Darwin huddle. The Marxists are trying to win the game, but more importantly, they just seem to be wanting to have fun. So yeah. that, that's the key here. It's interesting seeing Thelma Todd in the stands here. She isn't given much to do, but if she did not appear here, we would have to assume that she did drown in the lake at the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, of course, at the very end, uh, Thelma Todd, uh, this is, I think, the only Marx Brothers movie that ends with a wedding, right? Yes. Um, shall I just quit very quickly, just just remind everyone of, of what we what we don't see here? Please. Because, uh, as everybody, uh, or me, most people listening, I suspect, will, will know, um, the the wedding uh, sequence was a very last minute um, addition. In actual fact, in the in the cutting continuity script, it's not there. The 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 cutting continuity just ends with the with the football game ending. Um, but it was it was tacked on very late in the day, um, too late for Zeppo to be involved, I think. Um, but what's missing uh, and is in the shooting script is a very different ending where um, after the the football match, 
we see a sign saying Middle Campus tonight, 8pm, victory, celebration and bonfire. Um, so they're going to have a big bonfire. Harpo accidentally starts a fire in the wrong place and the college starts burning down. We see Jennings yelling from a third floor window. Groucho sees Jennings, indicates he's going into the building. Uh, Thelma says, Professor, you mustn't go into the building. You wouldn't live in there a minute. And Groucho says, I'll try it for a month and see how I like it. Um, <laughs> a good one. Which is, which is pretty good. Um, Zeppo says, no, you can't go in there because, um, you, it means I'll never see you again. Groucho says, if I were sure of that, I'd never come out. Um, Groucho does rush in. Then he comes out again, gives his cigar to somebody and says, hold this. There's no smoking in the building. Um, then he darts in again. Then he comes out holding a diploma, which he gives to Zeppo saying, here's your diploma. Thanks heaven. I got, you. thank heavens. I got you out of the college at last. Uh, Peggy, who was still in the script at this point, embraces Zeppo. Thelma embraces, uh, Groucho and Groucho says, that'll burn Jennings up. Then Harpo chases a girl into the burning building, followed by Chico and Groucho. Then they all emerge from the other side of the building in blackface. Oh my goodness. That was going to be the original ending. And we should point out this seems to have been filmed because there are stills of a number of these moments. There are stills, yeah. So this was filmed. Including the blackface? Presumably, yeah. Interesting. I I know they might have made a a, a few changes, but uh, it seems to have been shot, yeah. Oh, that would have been good to know. I, I don't, I don't bring it up again to flog my own work excessively, but in There's Nothing Like Liberty, the Marx Brothers in America, there's a little exploration of, uh, the treatment of race in the Marx Brothers films and the Day at the Races sequence. And, uh, we gave them some credit for only venturing into blackface waters once in Day at the Races and apparently never in vaudeville. Uh, I guess we'll have to revise that to say that it was <laughs> planned for horse feathers. All right. That's, that's that that is interesting. Although I have to say that um there's something so um uh genre appropriate about a wedding ending. You know, it's like a Shakespeare the ending of a Shakespearean comedy. It ends yeah. arbitrarily with a wedding because that's where a comedy of this kind should end, right? It's the ultimate rhyme and reconciliation moment and the fact that it's absurd is part of its charm. It's just weird that they yes. felt that they needed anything after the football game at all. Like that wasn't enough of a capper. Well, I think it, I think you'd want that moment. It's again, it is like in Shakespeare always. There's you want a moment of resolution, even if it's loony resolution uh, at the end of it. I, it doesn't bother me. I quite I, I like it. I like it, feels, it. I like it too. Uh, I like it. It feels organic. And this must have been filmed sometime significantly later because Chico is pretty much healed here. Harpo's jumping on his back. He's jumping on the pile. He seems to be physically back to to normal here. Right. I wonder if they understood on some level that monkey business had ended sort of abruptly and arbitrarily. And I wonder if it was on their minds that they needed some sort of button at the very end. And that, yeah, indeed, as you point out, Adam, a wedding would be the classic way of of tying it up in a bow. The fact that they had cut a major sequence just just made them a bit skittish and thought, you know. We'll do this, yeah weren't able to see it with the objectivity of, of an audience coming to it, never knowing that that was there in the first place, you know? Yeah. It'd be interesting exactly talking about Herman Mankiewicz again, because you would think that's the kind of intervention Mankiewicz would have made and said, you know, that, that long sequence doesn't work. Just get the boys married to, to the heroine and you'll have an ending. Um, I was guessing for a while that there might've been a real life college fire sometime around then that they thought maybe we need to cut this, but I couldn't find any, any oh, mention. That's interesting. Yeah. That's interesting. That I would think sense. it just would be you. It it would have seemed like we had this big physical comedy 
in the in the stadium, and now we just want to close and and close and leave. Uh, mm-hmm. The beat would be better that way. I think so. So, uh, horse feathers. I think we all agree it ranks pretty high on the list. I think in your intro to the Perelman anthology, Adam, you put it right at the top. Yeah, I. You know. Duck Soup is a more kind of stylish and in certain ways ambitious satire. Maybe A Night at the Opera is a more completely satisfying piece of Hollywood filmmaking. And for me, you can't beat Animal Crackers because it's like seeing the Marxes on stage in the 20s and you're sort of seated alongside Wilcott and Parker while George Kaufman <laughs> paces in the in the back row. But I don't know a Marx Brothers movie that gives more satisfaction. Monkey Business, wonderful as it is, has some longueur along the way. And there's not a, a dull moment, to use the, the cheapest possible standard, but a relevant one, in all of Horse Feathers. And as I said, it has this, for me, the special splendor of feeling that this is Groucho's character at its apex in its uh, linguistic aggression, in its mockery of academic pomposity, in its uh, uh, utterly unashamed lechery, which is uh, almost touches the edge of um, uh, the louche along the way, and in that um, uh, uh, tandem talent of uh, Groucho and Perlman working together and raising comedy to uh, 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 a, a dry iced uh, height that it rarely reached again. So I don't know if this is the greatest Marx Brothers movie, but I think it would be the first Marx Brothers movie I would urge on anybody who had never seen the Marx Brothers. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think it might be the, the wall-to-wall funniest, yeah. I know what you're saying, Matthew. I think you're right. It's probably their most consistently funny from beginning to end. I just think the yeah. high points in, in Duck Soup are higher. So I, I rate that one slightly above this. But uh, I have no problem with people who choose this as their favorite Marx film. You know, it's got music yeah. that Duck Soup doesn't have. And, and it's just so enjoyable from beginning to end. I, you know, you don't want it to be over. No doubt about it. We want to thank our guest, Adam Gopnik, for joining us for this episode. Uh, it's been a delight. I want to encourage our listeners to pick up a copy of the Library of America S.J. Perlman Anthology, edited and introduced by Adam Gopnik. Uh, really a treasure trove of great Perlman, some which will be very familiar to his fans, but some which will be a little less familiar. Including, as you said, Noah, uh a reminiscence of the Marxists, which is in in, in many respects more uh, more in anger than in in <laughs> joy, um, which I but I think it's um, it, it's fascinating as you know the thematically the way that these vaudeville comedians of instinctive genius meshed and didn't mesh with the 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 finest uh, highbrow satiric minds of their time. No doubt about it. Since I don't have a book to plug like you guys, I am going to point out that I do have an edit that I want everybody to see. I'm going to, we're going to post this on the blog. I did a re-edit of the Connie Bailey scene using the available footage to make it a little more coherent and less frustrating. Oh, wonderful. Okay. I, I submitted it to, uh, to Universal and, uh, they threatened to sue me. No, they didn't. <laughs> but uh, anyhow, take a look at it. I think it, it loses a couple of moments, but it's less distressing to watch, at least for me as an editor. Okay. Fantastic. So look for that at MarxBrothersCouncilPodcast.com, folks, along with links to purchase the Perlman book and uh, anything else we might have mentioned over the course of this 
this eight-hour discussion. <laughs> At the end of every episode, of course, uh, if we have a guest, our guest introduces our closing song, if you would. Any song from the American Songbook or from uh, from, a- from from any, any song? Anyway, any song that YouTube won't anyway. take down if we post. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, I think again, I think about Gilbert and Sullivan. I'd love to see um, uh, Coco's uh, song. I have them on a list; they won't be missed. Which is something Groucho delivered, and I think is part of the the malicious satiric spirit that under underlies Horse Feathers. That's that would be my choice. Well done. That is going to be it. Very nice. As someday it may happen that a victim must be found I've got a little list, I've got a little list Of society offenders who might well be underground And who never would be missed, who never would be missed There's the pestilential nuisances who write for autographs All people who have flabby hands and irritating laughs And all children who are up in dates and floor you with them flat. And all persons who in shaking hands shake hands with you like that. And all third persons who on spoiling tater-tays insist they'd none of them be missed. They'd none of them be missed. He's got them on the list. He's got them on the list. And they're none of them be missed. They'd none of them be missed. There's the banjo serenader and the others of his race. And the piano organist. I've got him on the list. And the people who eat peppermint and puff it in your face, they never would be missed. <laughs> they never would be missed. Then the idiot who praises with enthusiastic tone all centuries but this and every country but his own. And the lady from the provinces who dresses like a guy and who doesn't think she dances but would rather like to try. And that singular anomaly the girl who's never kissed. I don't think she'd be missed. I'm sure she'd not be missed. He's got her on the list. He's got her on the list. And I don't think she'll be missed. I'm sure she'll not be missed. And that nice I prious nuisance, who just now is rather rife. The judicial humorist. <laughs> I've got him on the list. All funny fellows, comic men, and clowns of private life. They'd none of them be missed. They'd none of them be missed. An apologetic statesman of a compromising kind, such as, uh, what do you call him, a thingamabob, and uh, likewise, uh, well, never mind. And, uh, tut, 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 and what's his name, and, well, well, you know who. Ah, the task of filling up the blanks I'd rather leave to you, for it really doesn't matter whom you put upon the list, for they'd none of them be missed. They none of them be missed. You may put them on the list. You may put them on the list. And they're none of them be missed. They'll none of them be missed. The Marx Brothers Council Podcast is produced and edited by Bob Gassell. Matthew Conium's books, The Annotated Marx Brothers, and That's Me Groucho, are published by McFarland. Noah Diamond's book, Give Me a Thrill, The Story of All Say She Is, is published by Bear Manor Media. Both can be found at major book outlets. For more info on this and all episodes, visit our website at MarxBrothersCouncilPodcast.com. Also look for us on Twitter. 
And for the place to talk marks and meet fellow fans, join us on the lively Marx Brothers Council Facebook group. See you next time. Yeah, here's a question for you scholars. Um, what's the first uh, sort of intellectual, uh, you know, not an exhibitor's review, appreciation of the Marxists? Uh, I can think of, you know, James Agee reviewing um, Night in Casablanca has a wonderful summary of Groucho's greatness and of Harpo and so on. Well, those, but, came, you know, on, those came on stage, you know, by Wolcott, even before they started mm, making movies. Yeah, so. yep. very early. And Bernard Shaw. Yeah, Bernard Shaw, right. Yeah. But that's, it's interesting to, to track that, the, the intellectual mm. appreciation of the Marxists from, uh, from early on. It's not like Chaplin where it's overwhelming. There's this wave of it. From fairly, you know, fairly on. I'm just reading two new books about Buster Keaton that I'm going to write about. And Keaton is very sporadic. There are moments when people have a huge appreciation of his artistry and then it vanishes for long periods of time. Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think that was their biggest stroke of luck, really, when they, when they, uh, when, uh, I'll say she is hit was that they, they were. Adopted, adopted by right. the you know the foremost uh, sophisticates of the time, who said you know these these vulgar New York people are uh, you know very very sophisticated and and uh, not only um, worth enjoying but worth us uh, getting involved with them and, uh, yeah. and kind of moving in tandem with them. Right. Generally, in the during the Marx Brothers' career, you find the the more um, high-minded critiques in the places you'd expect to you know the the marx brothers films as reviewed in the new yorker get a you know it's a different take than in uh you know a more middle variety and public variety yeah. yeah or i think mordent hall i think was reviewing films for the times during the 30s um and also you know you can find things in his reviews that seem surprisingly of our time like he was more perceptive yeah. than we think people were about how the act worked and what the problems mm. were in the thalberg era and and so forth whereas if you look in the trades it's all about their nuts their lunatics that you know they've just broken out of the asylum it's all that kind of right. stuff right it's exuberant so happy positive sometimes right but not not anal- not analytic well that's there's a there's a book for someone to do the marx brothers a critical heritage you know just yes. with, you know, sorting th- um sorting through that stuff um gentlemen excuse me this is off the thing but i've got i'm afraid i have to go with three i had budgeted three hours okay. for our get together but i apologize um but i'm i'm uh, i've got kids arriving so i should oh uh, sure we'll get to we'll get to it <laughs>